It's 8.30 on this February 11th. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday edition of Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. Samuel G. Brooks behind the controls. Good morning. As our technical producer. Uh, and, and, and Sam, you, I don't think you did. Uh, I don't think I should say this out of the... As a matter of fact, why am I saying this out of the gates? Sometimes, Some mornings I think we should follow a script. Um, I want to put you on the Uncle Sam cam almost out of the gates to talk about wardrobe today. Um, you have a fantastic one. Well, no, but th- that, thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, however, ladies and gentlemen, if, if we can take the Uncle Sam cam, if I can show Sam, take us through your approach to showing up today. My approach to showing up today. All right. Um, he tweaks the bow tie. Yeah. Well, okay. I love the Bears shirt. I've, I've gotten a lot, of, a lot of praise for it before. So it's amazing. It's a, it's a perpetual winner. Um, so we got that. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of being like, well, what goes with a Bears shirt? And decided it was a good day to revive the bow tie and vest. Well, you look so absolutely was, uh, marvelous. Well, thank you, sir. And you say there's something that happens when you uh, when you, when you wear a shirt that that, uh, that that gets feedback time after time, positive feedback time after time. It does a little something to your swagger, doesn't it? Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. It's just like you, you it's like you leave the house kind of with a strut in your step. You're just like, I know this is going to be or it's just, I've I have set myself up for a good day. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, this is <clears throat> this is a very rude question. Um some people on the chatterbox are going to say, "Ryan, you have you've thrown Sam under the bus." Uh, you'll probably be right. However, there's a 50% chance. I'm going to say a 55% chance that I'm actually setting you up to to look good. Is the bow tie Tied or clipped? Uh, does this answer your question? Yes! Yes! There you go. See what I'm saying? I do not own a clipped bow tie. Of course you don't. Of, I don't even know why. Would, I mean, I didn't think you did. That's why I That's why I gave you the majority benefit. <laughs> that's why I said I think it's a 55% chance. Because I erred on the side that there, there, there is something about a, a human being that can tie a bow tie and make it look as good as a clip-on. And that's why Sam handles the details of this broadcast, the details of this program. Plus, now you get to look like, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Sinatra in, you know, at the Palms uh, in in the 1960s now, because you get to walk around with your collar popped open and your bow tie untied. So for for those of you that that tuned in for our Patreon uh, New Year's show, which, uh, by the way, subscribe to our Patreon, you get to do exclusive shows with us. Plus, we have a big Um, announcement coming for our Patreon. Oh, yes, that's right. We do. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was I was wearing one the same day and we had this exact same. Like there's there's nothing better than the end of the night strutting around with the untied bow tie. Yes. I don't I don't know why I love the look so much, but I just do. You feel so relaxed it's well and just fantastic and plus i am more likely to to be putting you on camera all morning long now that you're looking so debonair so you know that, that there's going to be there's going to be a whole lot of sam brooks this morning uh but first we have a show to get to and uh I, our first guest is in the bullpen ready to go right now so uh, let's not uh wait any further real quick we're going to talk to scott gilmore editor at large mclean's magazine uh he's written a piece that's getting a lot of people's attention right now it's in mclean's at mclean's.ca dear prime minister time for you to go back to the office scott's going to join us in about 30 minutes time and in about an hour from now we're going to check in with the ceo of bitcoin well adam o'brien adam said to me and please don't do it now on the chatterbox my friends please don't do it right this minute because there's no way we're going to be able to keep track of it an hour from now but in an hour when we're getting set to introduce adam he says i said hey adam you know there's been some reporting the bbc and other outlets talking about the environmental impacts of bitcoin 
They're saying that cryptocurrency is actually harmful to the environment because of the the amount of computing power uh, and the subsequent emissions that go into mining for Bitcoin. And if your eyes are glazing over right now because you have no idea, well, don't worry about it. We'll get them to explain it. And so we're getting emails from real talkers that are going, if I can impose a, a tone of voice, the guy is tying his bow tie back without a mirror behind the camera. Ladies, I, I, I have very shiny screens in front of me. Unbelievable, this guy, like in a good way. Um, so so people are writing into me. And if I can impose a tone of voice on their emails, they're saying, hey, Ryan, you know, I bet you because, uh, you know, Bitcoin Wells, your title sponsor, you don't have the guts to ask the CEO about this. So I send it to Adam and I said, hey, heads up, like question number one, maybe not question one, but like in the top five, in the first five, he goes, dude, Adam says to me, he says, I want the real talkers to throw every tough question at me. He says, I want to take them all on. He wants to have a meaningful conversation about crypto. Plus, we're going to talk about, I mean, his sense of of, of where the public's at. I mean, Bitcoin and others, you know, Ethereum and other, you know, we'll get into it in an hour, have surged after the GameStop controversy, people are going, can we even trust Wall Street? The Federal Reserve is printing money in the States. They do it in Canada, too. Inflation obviously exacerbated as a result. A lot more people are looking at crypto. And I'm not here to sell you crypto. But Adam said, I want, you know, I want his take on that. He said he'd be happy to join us. Plus, Elon Musk buys like a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin. All of a sudden, boom, it jumps like 19 percent in one day. Maybe other factors at play, but that's obviously the biggest or most prominent one. So we're going to bring Adam in in like an hour. But leading us off today, in just a second, we're going to check in with the guy that MLA Drew Barnes name dropped time and time and time again yesterday. That's right. He, he was talking about this pandemic plan. You remember that? And we thought, well, we, we've got to go to the source on this. Real talkers are going to want to talk to the guy that developed the plan or at least has a really clear idea of what it entails now, I talked to him on the phone yesterday, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired David Redman, who's the former head of Emergency Management Alberta. It's the Alberta Man Emergency Management Agency. Um, I talked to him a bit on the phone. He, he says he goes, yeah, the provincial government, the federal government, he says nobody's following the plan that we put in place. I said, well, will you will you come and talk about it? He goes, yeah. So he's going to lead us off in like 30 seconds right after I remind you that Bitcoin well is indeed our presenting sponsor in each every morning as we get set to officially kick off the show. You know, once Sam and I are finished with our with our horseplay and we're ready to actually get serious, I remind you that Bitcoin Well is your source, the easiest, most reliable way to learn about, buy, and sell Bitcoin. They're proudly headquartered in Edmonton. They have the Bitcoin ATMs across Canada, and they've got a staff ready to talk to you right now. You can follow the link under the Sponsors tab. They're right at the top at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Yesterday, we talked to Cypress Medicine Hat MLA Drew Barnes. He's He's gone rogue to a certain degree uh, in the sense that, uh, well, number one, that he talked to us, and number two, that he's, he's joined this End the Lockdown National Caucus featuring... Uh, conservative politicians from across Canada. Now, not just conservative politicians. There's something very unique about the group, right? Maxime Bernier, Derek Sloan, both of them former conservative MPs. Uh, Angela Pitt out of Airdrie, Drew Barnes here. Derek Fildebrandt, formerly of the Freedom Conservative Party and, and, and of course, the Wild Rose Party before that. Um, other politicians that you would note, Councillor Amber Harris out of Gibbons, Alberta, there on the list, as well as politicians from Ontario, Quebec, B.C., and across Canada. 
They're calling for an end to what they're describing as the lockdown. And and Drew Barnes and I got into it yesterday a little bit. Differing opinions, different approaches. I'm going to fact check a couple of things that he said as this show goes on. But we couldn't ignore that he kept referencing a pandemic plan that was put together. And we'll get to the details on that. By a former lieutenant colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces. David Redmond was an officer in the Canadian Army for 27 years. Retiring as lieutenant colonel, he was posted 19 times to operations in Germany, Egypt, the former Republic of Yugoslavia, the U.S., across Canada. About 20 years ago, in 2000, he became part of what's now known as the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. And following September 11th, 2001, he led the development and the implementation of the Alberta Crisis Management Counterterrorism Plan. He became the head of the EMA four years later, and he led the provincial response to those devastating floods in June of 2005, who will ever forget. He also led the development of the 2005 Provincial Pandemic Influenza Plan. A year later, he retired, but continues to work as an expert in emergency management, provincially, nationally, and internationally. At least he did until 2013 when he was fully retired. But here he is doing interviews again. Seems like the work never stops. Uh, Retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, David Redman, welcome to Real Talk. We really appreciate you making time for us today. Good morning. So this Alberta Emergency Management Agency, I've been lucky enough, as a matter of fact, to do a bit of work with them, David, and and uh, I host their annual summit every year. So for people that don't know, it's, you know, five or six hundred fire chiefs, uh, dispatch center personnel, uh, police officers, elected officials come together to talk about emergency management in the province of Alberta. I suspect you're going to tell us that this pandemic would qualify as an emergency that would require management. I would say that it is a public emergency, not a public health emergency, and that it should have right from the start been treated as a public emergency. And the very first thing you do in any emergency is you look at the hazard and you determine who is most at risk. Clearly, back in February, we knew that the people most at risk were the people over the age of 60 who had multiple comorbidities worldwide. At that time in February, 95% of all deaths worldwide were in that target group. So here in Alberta, what we should have done is taken our pre-existing pandemic plan, the one that stated 2014 on the website, taken it out, reviewed it, and tailored it specifically to COVID-19 with the very first task to be protecting those most at risk. And that would have meant that by the middle of March, we should have put in place a quarantine plan for all our seniors in long-term care homes over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. And by isolation, I mean staff and the residents, but do it in an extremely humane and positive way, and therefore protecting those people. If you look at the statistics Canada-wide right now, you'll see that 96.4% of all deaths in Canada have been people over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. And in fact, 74% of all the deaths in Canada. So out of our 20,000, 21,000 deaths, over 15,000 happened in long-term care homes. That's unconscionable. When you look at how this evolved uh, Canada's pandemic response and obviously we'll have to talk about uh, uh, provinces as well because the federal government has had a, a general plan they've implemented some policy obviously with regards to borders and and vaccine procurement and I don't know if you want to get into that or if, or, or if that's in your wheelhouse 
Of course, each province has managed it differently as well. When you and I spoke yesterday, you said neither the province nor the federal government really is doing what they should be doing right now. Why don't we start with the feds? Where do you think the federal government's response has, has fallen short or maybe gone against best practice? Well, okay, let's start with the fact that a pandemic truly is um, uh, a provincial jurisdiction because they run the healthcare system. So if we look at what the federal government has done, I believe they've been an accomplice in forcing the concept of lockdowns, it became very clear that as a as a tool, the uh, the giving out of over four hundred billion dollars to lock Canadians in their homes was an initiative that was supported by the federal government in a very dramatic way with the morning uh, uh, distribution of money from the cottage in Rideau Hall. But the the entire focus of what was going on was wrong right from the start. Prior to this pandemic in twenty nineteen. The world's best minds in pandemic influenza type diseases got together and updated and reissued the non-pharmaceutical intervention guides for the world. We have them embedded in our national plan and in our provincial plan. And by non-pharmaceutical, what I mean is the list of about 15 measures that you and I would now call a lockdown. The concept that we would close schools, strongly recommended against. The concept that we would close business, strongly recommended against. The idea that people who were exposed to the virus but didn't have the virus would actually be quarantined, strongly recommended against. There's 15 different subparagraphs in that complete document, which were in our own plans. We had learned the hard way from previous pandemics that you don't follow what we now call a lockdown mentality or a non-pharmaceutical interventions. They create far more damage than any good they do. And yet, for some reason, we completely disregarded our pre-existing plans and all the lessons learned from previous pandemics and went on this adventure. Now, not every country in the world did, and the other countries that haven't followed this have seen exactly the same results as we have. So the actual effect of lockdowns, and there's a recent study just from December on the entire first wave by extremely professional doctors that said that the impact of lockdown mentality and the lockdowns themselves have had almost no effect on case counts. We have, uh, okay, let me first of all say, David, that, that a lot of the questions that I'm going to ask you are, are, let me call them uh, questions that would come from civilians. There's no questioning your credibility, your experience, your knowledge on the file. When I look anecdotally and take a look, for example, at, at Australia or New Zealand, we had a good conversation with with Dr. Stephen Duckett in, in Melbourne, who talked to us about what they did. He said, listen, the reason why I was able to have 15 people around my dining table last night uh, eating Atlantic salmon was because we we conducted a very serious. Everybody bought into this. I think he said a two or three week lockdown where absolutely everything shut down. He said, and look at this two, three weeks later, here we are dining around the table, breaking bread. We see some countries that have done that, and, and it appears as though it's worked for them here in Canada, the United States and, and other countries where they've been the governments have been trying to find a balance between sustaining some form of economic health and trying to protect public health. You know, this is all signs point to this being a prolonged circumstance. In other words, probably two years, though, putting a time frame on it may be a fool's errand. So what do you see internationally that gives you reason to believe that that's not, let's say what Australia has done, that that's not an effective approach? 
Okay, so let's start with Australia and New Zealand, and let's go to uh, New Zealand. As it, have I lost you? I'm with you. No, you've got it. Okay, okay. It just it, things seem to freeze here for a minute. Um, let's start with Australia, and in particular New Zealand. The difference between Canada and New Zealand is apparent. New Zealand is an island, and one of the big things about that is they can control their airports and their ports of entry. In Canada, in the pandemic, let's not talk about before the pandemic. In the pandemic, 30,000 trucks a day cross our border. We can't stop them. We have a just-in-time food supply system. So the idea that you can take a country like Canada and separate it from the world is, is simply not possible. That's not the country we live in, and that's not the way that a pandemic will ever work in our country. The United States, our largest trading partner, we trade with them constantly every single day. So the, the comparison to somebody like New Zealand or even Australia is different. And I also want to point out that when the pandemic first started, Australia and New Zealand were in the middle of summer. We were in the end of our winter. Okay, they were just, it, it's a very environmental thing. If you look at the annual influenza curve for our country versus their country, you're going to see that it's exactly the same, but a mirror image. And so when the pandemic hit here, we were just coming out of our viral infection curve. And the people that claim that lockdowns actually stopped the virus here in Canada uh, were completely wrong. It is a seasonal virus and it dropped off just like it always did, flattened through the summer. What I couldn't understand is why people would believe that in October, when our seasonal virus curve goes up exponentially, people thought COVID wouldn't. It has worked continuously, just like a seasonal virus. And guess when a seasonal virus normally peaks? It normally peaks in the middle of January, and so it has again in Canada with COVID. We see it happening across our country. The case counts are dropping, just like nature does every year. Uh, on our uh, live chat here, uh, David, uh, people that are tuning in that are watching us on YouTube right now, Craig says, you know, we didn't know back in February that the most vulnerable would be those over 60. Uh, the first fatality from COVID was an ER doc in his 30s. How much of pandemic response or how much of, of emergency management in general uh, relies on, uh, you know, let me call it learning on the fly or being willing to change policy, change approach? Okay, so it definitely you have to have flexibility and the emergency management system is totally agile and totally flexible. But I need to challenge your, your, your viewers comment. I personally, and I have shared with governments since um, uh, April, all the data that I was just getting off my smartphone in February. In February, we knew that the deaths in China, Japan, South Korea, France, and Spain 95% of the deaths, and they were monumental numbers, were happening in people over 60 with multiple comorbidities. And by multiple, I mean three or more comorbidities. So, so the data was there in February. This was no surprise. And that's why in March, sitting in my son's apartment, me and two other friends just defined exactly how we would quarantine seniors homes because we knew right then what needed to happen. That clearly wasn't what our government here in Alberta did and your governments all across Canada did. They instead decided to lock the entire population down, employing non-pharmaceutical interventions that they shouldn't have in the middle of March. We did know that that's where the deaths were and the world knew that. If you look at what was happening in Italy, the numbers were 
In fact, 97% of the deaths were over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. So, so the very first thing you always look at the real hazard and the data you've got, and you develop a plan for it. And then yes, you adjust if the data changes, but I'm telling you now, the data in Canada is exactly the same as it was in February. In fact, even more severe, 96.4% of all the deaths in Canada are seen. The average age of death in Canada is 84 years old. That's the average age out of our 21,000 deaths. So I, I just want to be, and, and that's a fact, um, I just want to clearly understand here, and what I want to do is, is and please correct me to, at any point if I'm not accurately summarizing uh, the pandemic influenza plan that you helped develop. Uh, my understanding, back in 2005, it was presented online again in 2014, but you did not work on it in 2014, correct? So, so what happens is, it, the government of Alberta and the emergency management agency is responsible for coordinating every 10 years an update of all our emergency plans. So we have emergency plans for fires, floods, tornadoes, the whole bit, pandemic being one of them. And every 10 years, you take the plan out, you look at the new best practices from the world, and you update that plan and you present it. So the one that we developed in, in 2005 was then reevaluated and reissued in 2014. And it's the one that's still on the website to this day and was due for a review, uh, regardless if there was a pandemic or not, in 2024 probably starting in 2023, and they would have reissued it by 2024. So the plan that's there is the plan that was handed to, to us, that we updated in 2005, that was then updated in 2014, and is now the one that should have been used. This is, So what I wanted to get to is in that plan, the, the four points, if I understand them correctly, and I'm kind of boiling them down, so if I miss anything, let me know. But you, you say, number one, you've got to control the spread of disease. And reduce illness and death, right? By provo providing right. access to prevention measures, care, and treatment. Number two, mitigate societal disruption. I ensure the continuity and recovery of critical services. Number three, minimize adverse economic impact. And number four, support efficient and effective use of resources during response and recovery. So it all starts with number one, which is controlling the spread of disease. Uh, so, you're talking about care homes, long-term care centers. Obviously, there would be uh, senior members of our population or members of the population over 60 that I assume would would quarantine in their homes, um, would obviously have to limit uh, visits with, with family members or friends. There would be a certain quote-unquote lockdown with certain citizens. You'd have to convince healthcare workers to be willing to quarantine at their place of employment for what could be 6, 12, 18 months, right? Does the rest of it, under this plan, or if you were rolling out the plan, does the rest of it just look like business as usual? I mean, the shopping malls are wide open. Everybody's playing hockey. Is it? Would it be life as normal under the plan? Okay, let, let me start. I, I got to answer that in parts. Please. So, so let me start with the first part, the four goals. It appears to me that of the four goals, our medical officers of health focused strictly on the first one and completely failed. Because if we believe that 21,000 deaths in Canada in our seniors when we knew they were the ones at risk is correctly addressing the, the, the focusing to mitigate the impact of the disease on our population, they've completely missed the mark. The other three goals, in my opinion, have been completely ignored. Okay, so that, that, that's sort of the first premise. Then let me get to the isolation, uh, the, the quarantining of our hospitals. Let me give you one example because if I had had a team working in February, I could have developed 
a series of options, presented them to the premier, and he could have picked the option he liked the best. But here's the one that, that I would present right away. If you're going to quarantine a senior's home and the staff, what you do is you get a designated um, uh, living space for the staff, which is probably a hotel or something like that, where their meals and accommodation is provided for free. They quarantine for 14 days. They are then moved in a quarantine busing system to as many long-term care homes that are quarantined as you want during the day to do shifts, and then back to their accommodation at night. They do a 30-day shift, and then they go home to their families. Before their next shift starts, they go for a 14-day quarantine and do another 30-day shift. You and I, we live in Alberta. We know that's exactly how the oil sands operate right now. That's what the oil sands have operated for, for, for a decade or more. People don't actually live in Fort McMurray. They live in Nanaimo, BC and come in for a 30-day shift and go home. So what I'm saying is there's many ways to quarantine the hospitals and the staff in a way that works really well. Quarantine with that staff are entertainers, uh, people that would go into the, the centers for a 30-day shift and provide entertainment to the people, that are the residents that are in those long-term care homes. We could make it as enjoyable and as pleasant as possible. We saw examples of this in other countries. We didn't do it here. And so finally, your, your, the last part of your point is, uh, do, does the rest of the world carry on as, it, as normal? My answer is yes. If you look at how many people under the age of 60 that have died in all of Canada, you'll get 750. We unfortunately kill in traffic accidents every year, 1200 Canadian citizens, but we don't tell everyone to stay in their house and not drive their car to stop those 1200 people from dying under the age of 60. But those 750 deaths are, are recorded under the current plan right those 750 deaths are recorded because we and i don't even like use to be honest david i don't even like using the word lockdown because i don't think we've really locked down but we take a look at i mean even off the, off the top of my head you know uh, cargill uh you know the meat processing plants in brooks and in high river those those are two examples off the top of my head where the general public not senior citizens saw rapid spread uh, that's got to concern you so if you're concerned about spread, then you should be, what I'm trying to tell you is lockdowns have done nothing to contain spread. The viral infection curve that we see every year in our country has been matched exactly with COVID as with everything else. And let me give you one that I know your viewers will, they'll explode their heads. Sweden has not ordered the wearing of masks. In fact, they strongly discourage it. They believe in one meter, not two meter social distancing. They have not ordered their businesses closed. They have not ordered their schools closed except for two very short periods and only for their senior high school, what we'd call grade 11 and 12, once in the spring and once over the Christmas break. Sweden, if you compare Sweden to Quebec, it has a lower case count, uh, sorry, not a lower case count, a lower death per capita than Quebec. It also has a lower death rate than Germany, sorry, than France, than Italy, than Spain, than the UK, than Belgium, and even Switzerland, all who went to severe lockdowns. And the reason why you always hear in the media, because they love to bounce off the fact that, well, it's much worse than its Nordic neighbors. Well, if you cherry pick your facts, then you'll have ignored all those other countries I just listed. But the reason why Sweden did worse than both Norway and Finland is because Sweden has not quarantined their long-term care homes like I'm saying we should have here. And if they had, there's been a total of 300 deaths in Sweden for people under the age of 60. Most of them 
had multiple comorbidities, just like most of the people here in Alberta and in Canada under the age of 60, in that 750 I talked about, had multiple comorbidities that contributed significantly to their deaths. So let's talk. I've said 75% of the deaths in Canada, and it's a fact, happened in our long-term care homes. Let's say that now instead of killing 21,000 Canadians, we've only killed 5,000 Canadians because we quarantined our long-term care homes. If we had then targeted through our family practitioners and asked them who are the people that have three comorbidities, things like already pre-existing heart conditions, already having uh, dementia, already having severe diabetes, or already having cancer, any grouping of three of those, we could have offered them a quarantine system either in their own home with the primary caregiver or in a similar to long-term care home facility that we would have provided not later than the end of March. We simply chose to ignore it and pretend that locking everybody in their homes would, would not allow the virus to spread. David, we've clearly seen that never happened. David, I know you have another interview coming, and so do I, So I, and I still have 1,400 questions for you, so I'm going to try to be as efficient as I can here. I noticed you touched on masks, uh, and I'm curious for your take on, on whether you believe that mask orders are, are prudent at this point, most especially considering what we're learning in the preliminary stages of these new variants. We've spoken to some medical researchers and doctors about those variants. How do you feel about masks, and does uh, the rise of these variants impact your perspective whatsoever? Absolutely. The, the variants don't impact my position at all. But, but the, the whole concept of masks, you can find extremely well-published doctors on both sides of this issue. And so as an emergency manager, I'm not a doctor, that's not my issue. If wearing a mask makes you feel better, go for it. But I do not believe the government should order you to wear one because the science on both sides is very clear that this is a debate that will last forever. It was a debate that went on back in the Spanish flu. It's a debate that will happen in the next pandemic. If it makes you feel better to wear one, do it. Okay, that's probably your next interview. That's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired David Redmond. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Uh, yeah, I will note David told us right out. He said, listen, he said, I got an interview hard start nine o'clock and that's exactly what that is there. So, wow. So there you have it. That's David Redmond, a re- retired uh, lieutenant colonel with the Canadian Army for, for more than 25 years. He served. He developed Alberta's pandemic plan back in 2004 as the head of Alberta's what's now known as the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. Um, I'm going to check in. I'm not surprised to see that the chatterbox going absolutely nuts. And I would imagine that our our, uh, our our hashtag real talk rj is probably uh the same as well uh it's great to see alicia uh watching this morning out of calgary she says since david redmond wants all seniors quarantined um she says i see he graduated college in 72 probably born around there people are doing research on his background said he was probably born around 1950 so he's at least 71 better lock yourself down uh jamie says he's making my blood boil i feel like he's spreading misinformation Aaron says, and with the mention of comorbidities, this guy officially fills up the COVID bingo card. Uh, Kim says, my grandma with dementia did have to quarantine. Um, Some long-term care centers did exactly what he's saying. (laughs) Marina Marina says, who needs a morning workout? This guy has my heart rate through the roof. Um, I'm just reading these on on, 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 at random here. Kaylin says, if this is a a two-sided issue which is not please let us hear from the other side to calm my nerves i would say probably the other side on this would be 
like I he, this is an interesting position because this is not like some guy that we brought in that I that I found on Facebook or a guy that I was talking to at the Legion, right? This guy's the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. This is a guy that's been deployed all around the world to manage. Now, he's not managed pandemics. And he said, I'm not a medical doctor, but he said, based on the evidence of how you would respond to a public emergency, he said, not a public health emergency, a public emergency like a pandemic. This is what you should be doing. Donald says he's both sizing masks. Judy says he's correct on one thing. We'll never agree on how to handle this. Craig says the science on the one side is science. The science on the other side is Karen on Facebook. That from Craig with apologies to Karen's everywhere. Ashley says, really, the science on both sides. Greg says, I'd be curious to know what he would say. Why do case counts go down after a lockdown? Also, why social distance at all? You know, he speaks of Sweden with a one meter rule. Why are they even bothering with that? Eric says, isn't there something in military strategy that instructs you to not underestimate your foe? It's an interesting point. I appreciate I don't know. I, 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 we could go back and there are hundreds of comments after this interview. I appreciate it. This is an interesting one from Jennifer who says, uh, are you regretting your choice of this interview yet? Why would I regret my choice of the interview? This isn't I know that people are accustomed to talk shows that have a you have a goal like we're going to convince you all of this or I'm going to reiterate my position every time. So I'm going to bring on guests that I align with all the time to prove that what I say is the case or what, what the position that we take on something is the right way. Yesterday, we talked to Drew Barnes to pick his brain to try to figure out what's up with this end the lockdown caucus. What's the deal? I mean, Drew Barnes is, is essentially and I commend Drew for coming on the show and talking about it. And Drew and I agreed on approximately nothing. Uh, but I appreciate that he that he came on and sparred and that he came on and answered some questions that people would want answers to. People would be curious to know what makes a guy like that tick. He's essentially challenging his own government's approach to the pandemic. You know, Drew and Angela Pitt are the only two, unless something's changed. I haven't I haven't checked in this morning, but as of the time that we spoke yesterday, they were the only two members of an elected government, a majority government that are sitting on this national caucus. The rest of them are politicians that are either independent or have been kicked out of their parties. You know, Hillier in Ontario as well, the, the independent MPP out there or their municipal politicians that, that, that don't have a party affiliation. So for me, if I'm talking to Drew Barnes and he says, you've got to talk to to retired Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, who drew up this plan. What do we want to do? I want to talk to David Redman, who drew up the plan, pick his brain, get the details, get the perspective. So so no, I don't regret the interview, of course, not even one bit. KK says people with comorbidities matter. People who don't die but are affected for the rest of their lives matter. Uh, These are not arguments to not protect our communities. Chris says, I didn't know that New Zealand and Australia were completely food self-sufficient. That's very interesting. Jim says, I'm so tired of the emphasis on deaths. He says, I have a couple of friends who are trying to recover from COVID. They're still carrying oxygen tanks after four months. They're still having trouble breathing. Allison says, why does he keep harping on death statistics? Didn't we increase our restrictions? Allison says it's not a lockdown because our medical resources were at the breaking point. 
Robin, this is interesting. Robin says, this guy's one of the reasons I quit emergency management. The industry has changed dramatically since he retired, but the old ways cling on. Hmm. Blake says, if we get hit by a bus, we should all thank the bus driver. Uh, Okay, keep the comments coming. I appreciate you. You know, many of you are saying, hey, Ryan, you need to reiterate he's not a doctor. He said it himself. Obviously, he's not. He's, He's a retired soldier, right? Um my thanks to him for joining us. Interesting stuff. I don't agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, at the same time, though, I said it to his face, and I'll say it again. You cannot question his experience. You cannot question, um, you know, the boots that he's walked miles and miles in. Interesting perspective, especially even at the end on masks. That kind of, wow. It's not what you'd expect, is it? I don't know. When you expect, like, when I think military, I think of, and maybe my grandfathers were just telling tales, but, you know, the 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 uh, ranking officer coming in and seeing if they can bounce quarters off your made bed to see if the sheets were pulled tight enough. Expect compliance, following orders. You know, you'd think he would support wearing masks. It was interesting to hear that he didn't. Scott Gilmore is coming up in just a couple of seconds. This is a great time to remind you that the team at Alta Moving and Storage wants to take all of the stress out of the move that you maybe have planned. Oh my gosh, can you imagine somebody that has a move planned anywhere in the prairies right now? If you're coming at us from Western Canada, and I'm not talking about Vancouver, I'm not talking about all those people wearing flip-flops in Vancouver right now. You know, keep your pictures to yourselves while the rest of us here on the prairies are seeing hockey pucks shatter when they hit goalposts. We're going to check in with the team at the world's longest hockey game tomorrow morning, by the way, at 845. But if you are moving, regardless of what the weather looks like, and you want to take as much stress out of the move as possible, Alta Moving and Storage is here to make that happen. They have these pod-style containers. They drop them off at your place. You load them at your leisure. If you need help moving them, obviously they do that, including laborers. And then they can, of course, also help you with short and long-term storage solutions. You can find them online. Just check out the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find the team at Friesen Brothers. Circle your calendars. It's less than a month now, March 5th, until they open their 15th Alberta location. They're proud to feature Alberta produce when they can, Alberta milled flour and their famous sourdough bread and their cinnamon buns, and of course, Alberta beef, pork, chicken, turkey. For more than 60 years, Friesen Brothers has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. I'll tell you what, Sam, because we can do this on the fly, we can do whatever we want. I'm going to skip the news. As a matter of fact, why don't you give me the news stinger? I'm making it. I want to keep Scott hanging tight. I do have an entire newscast, but I'm not going to get to it all. I do want to fact check one thing. This is uh, story number one. It's our lead story this morning, and and I'll do this. We'll do a, a shortened news break so we can get to McLean's editor at large, Scott Gilmore. Yesterday, you heard on this show that suicides were up in the province of Alberta. That from MLA Drew Barnes. We wanted to fact check that. Of course, sometimes in a live interview, you'll, you'll get information. And, and as we grow our production staff, we'll have more fact checkers and producers on the team doing real time type stuff. But every once in a while, I'm flying in the clouds to a certain degree. As soon as we got off the air, Sam and I said, we better fact check that. Well, it turns out Alberta's premier touched on it yesterday as well. And it turns out that along with many of the others, uh, the issues that are facing Albertans this year, um, we know that mental health is among 
the highest concerns. As a matter of fact, you told us that, Real Talkers, in one of our first ever questions of the week presented by Y Station. You remember that. You told us more than 60% of you that your mental health was in a worse place now than a year ago. But here's the deal. There is one good news story here, and that is the province's suicide rate is lower than previous years. Alberta Justice releasing data that shows that the number of people that died of suicide in 2020 uh, is 490 at last reporting. May they rest in peace. May their families feel peace and love and strength. But that's about 100 fewer people than the number recorded in 2019 when we lost 601 Albertans to suicide. Now, of course, officials say the data for 2019 and 2020 subject to change. There are medical investigations into some of these deaths. But the totals for this year, well below average, is, as a matter of fact, down almost 20% lower than the five-year average. We wanted to make sure that you knew about that. Scott Gilmore is editor-at-large at McLean's Magazine when Scott speaks to a certain degree. And, of course, he's very humble, so he, he, he will eschew the praise. But when Scott writes and Scott speaks, people listen. And it's great to have him here on the show with one of the more impressive backgrounds. Are you actually... Uh, and I know that I know that th- those aren't like Olympic caliber paddles, but are you actually an, a rowing aficionado? I mean, that room to me, uh, I'm imagining a smell of mahogany and rich leather. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm I'm not a rower, but I am a, a canoeer. You know, I grew up in Alberta and Edmonton and where I spent all my time in the mountains. And when I moved out east, there was no mountains to climb. So I, I got into canoeing and those are broken canoe paddles that all have good stories behind them well there you go hey scotty it's great to have you here on the show and i want to talk to you about your piece um dear prime minister time for you to go back to the office i i know that it's making the rounds i've heard from a lot of people as a matter of fact a couple of friends and i were chatting about it yesterday but i've just spent a half an hour uh talking to a former emergency manager a former canadian soldier uh who, who really had some pointed criticism with regards to how the alberta provincial government the federal government has been managing this pandemic when we talk about the federal government and pandemic management, everybody right now is talking about vaccine procurement and vaccine distribution. I would imagine you've been keeping an eye on this story. Seems to depend who you talk to with regards to where people are aiming their fury. Where do you land on the vaccine process right now? Well, two points. One, you you know, objectively, we're doing a terrible job. I actually just checked the numbers before I, I came on your show, and we're now currently ranked 40, 40th seventh in the world uh, in terms of our vaccination rate per capita. And I think the reason why we're doing so bad is that when no one's responsible or when, sorry, when everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. So the premiers can blame the federal government for some aspects of it. The federal government can blame the premiers. Our health authorities can blame both, both other parties. And so as a result, nobody's really owning this, which is why I think the prime minister needs to step up. The buck needs to stop with him, whether he likes it or not, whether or not traditionally health issues have been a, at a provincial level. We're dealing with a once in a century crisis and the prime minister needs to act like he's a world leader. So where do you believe that he's falling short? I mean, we're probably going to jump right into your most recent column here. The, the fact that he's, he's working remotely, et cetera. And I'm curious to know why you think that's most important that he gets back into the PMO. But but if, if you were his chief of staff or his senior advisor, what would change right now? Well, I would probably immediately set up a war room, you know, and staff it with with not only the senior officials and ministers that are responsible to federal level, but put it in a, a chair in there for every province to make sure they got a senior liaison there so we can stop treating this like it's 10 separate different pandemics and treat it like it's a national emergency, which it is. 
And then, as you mentioned, I would have the premier or the prime minister go to the office. So, you know, I'd, I'd have your your viewers, your listeners listen, ask themselves this question. If there was no pandemic right now, if it was, say, circa 2019, would you want the prime minister working from his den at home or from the prime minister's office with all the facilities there? Now, I'm guessing they would all say, well, obviously, we'd want him working from the office, not from home. And the reason why because it's obviously a more effective place to lead, whether you're leading a regional manufacturer or a G7 country. You know, you've got access to communication resources, you've got staff down the hall you can shout at, you can have ad hoc meetings, you can bring everybody together. And you know, that's, that's how you manage a crisis. You don't do it from your den. And every other G7 leader has come to the exact same conclusion and has moved back to their offices. But ours is still doing it through Zoom. So why do you think he's not? Well, excellent question. Um, I don't have an answer other than to point out that this government has been very, very good over the years at virtue signaling, at performative uh, policies, at being, you know, at, at showing themselves doing things. And he continues to think, I believe, that he's setting a good example for everybody by staying home. But you know what? The people who need to be told to stay at home are not going to listen to him. So stop it. We don't need a model. We need a leader. Get into the office, start shouting at your staff, set up a war room, crack some heads, particularly with some of the premiers. They're doing such a horrible job. Threaten them like, like his father did, who I couldn't stand, but at least at the very least he knew when to smack the premiers. <laughs> And, and, and get us through this because we're 46th. You know, countries like Morocco are doing a better job than we are. Sorry to any of the Moroccans that are on the show. It's a lovely country. Yeah, my, still. my next my next guest is the senior leadership in, in Morocco. So thanks very much, um, <laughs> Scott. So so which which premiers are doing a lousy job when you when you when you talk about cracking skulls? I, I mean, I've just had an interview that I kind of knew where it was going to go before I talked to him, but not entirely. And, and I'm a little bit punch drunk. After my conversation with the retired lieutenant colonel, I'm still sifting through and sorting out what it means. He's criticizing the provincial government. This is a this is a former head of emergency management that says essentially, I mean, if I can paraphrase accurately, he says we should have locked down our long term care centers, taken everybody with comorbidities and had them locked down and basically changed nothing else. Like I said to him, like, so are you saying we would be fully wide open shopping malls, skating rinks? He goes, I mean, essentially, he said. Yep. And so when you're criticizing premiers or provinces, I need to ask you where you think they're doing a lousy job. Are they too locked down? Are they locked yeah. down? Not enough. Well, just as, as a comment, I, I'm sorry, I missed your, your earlier uh, guest and I don't want to disparage him in any way. because I, I, I don't know his background and, I, and I, I don't know him. But from my own personal experience, I used to, when I was a diplomat, put our military on a pedestal, in particular our officers and, and our, our generals. And then I spent several years in Afghanistan working with them. <laughs> and I realized that just like every industry and every part of government, you know, just because you've made it up the ladder doesn't necessarily mean you know what you're doing. So take, take everything with a grain of salt and take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I've never led a province. And so maybe what I'm about to say is, is nonsense. But it does seem fairly clear to me from my perspective sitting here in Ontario that Without a doubt, the Premier of Ontario has done a terrible job, just simply beginning with communications. Like right now, I'm on super double lockdown, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. I don't think I can get a haircut, and I 
do have to wear a mask at the grocery store or maybe I have to have the groceries delivered. Like it's it's totally unclear because whenever they they announce new measures, two or three days later, they clarify them. They roll some of them back. They they make some of them harder. And then you hear the mayors contradict them and the health health authorities come up with a different uh, solution. And so honestly, nobody knows what, what, what we're supposed to be doing right now. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is I, I don't have a lot of patience for the people that say we shouldn't have locked down. We should have kept going as as uh, as before, maybe just as your guest said, lock down the, the long term care facilities. And my reason for that is when I take a look beyond Canada and I look at the countries where they did get their act together, they locked it all down fast and hard and they went through a, a painful you know few months. But then they got out of it, whereas we continue to muddle through on this nonsense and, you know, I got a message this morning from a friend of mine in Dhaka in Bangladesh who has his vaccine and was asking when I was going to be coming out next to visit. And when I told him, I'm probably not getting a vaccine until the end of the year, if I'm lucky, he was gobsmacked. But that's what it is. You know, 2020 was stolen by this virus. We all lost. We, we didn't attend marriages. We didn't see our parents. It was a miserable year. 2021 is being stolen by our politicians because they didn't get their act together. Right now, Australians are enjoying the Australian Open, and I'm staring out my window for day 364. Well, and this is why, like, you know, if you want to, I don't want to get too, like, I, I, I can get rambly. You know, may Larry King rest in peace, and people always said that the, the legacy of Larry King was he said, the shorter the question, the better. Um, and, and that's what I'm the worst at. Uh, so here, this is my ramble warning. But. I remember when Jason Kenney, premier of Alberta, this was several months ago, uh, approached the podium and they had to announce new measures because the rates were getting out of control and health professionals were sounding the alarms and the numbers of, of ICU admissions and and covid patients on ventilators were getting to a point where where it was a real sort of a red flag moment. And Premier Kenny comes to the podium and he says, I know many of you are upset and I remember thinking at that time that in my circle of my exposure on social media, hell yeah, people are upset. But guess what? They were upset for two reasons. Some of them thought that we needed to lock down way harder. And some of them thought that all the restrictions needed to be lifted. And I even look right now. And again, this is my own bubble that I've created. These are the people I follow on Twitter. These are my Facebook friends. So yeah, to a certain degree, and this is not a scientific survey. But I've got some people saying that government is failing us. We need to lock down. Schools should be capped at enrollment and we shouldn't be allowing this and we shouldn't be allowing that. And then I've got other people, you know, people who I care about that own live music venues, that own restaurants, that own stores that are saying, allow us to open, allow us to keep people safe. These are our livelihoods. And I sit here in the middle and you know me, I'm happy to state a strong opinion if I have one. I don't know what the hell to think. I mean, I know the science. I know we bring doctors on the show. I know what they're telling us. I know what our family is doing and what our decisions look like. But good grief. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, it, it, it's difficult. And what makes it probably harder right now is it's happening in the 21st century when we all have a very, very loud voice that carries a long way on social media. Yeah. And so those opinions that might have been isolated at a kitchen table 30 years ago are now being broadcast coast to coast. And frankly, not all opinions are the same. I'm, I'm sorry, they're, they're not. You know, if, if we were going to be having a conversation today about automobiles, uh, you shouldn't listen to anything I have to say about them. But if we're having a conversation about pandemics and epidemiology, 
I think we should be listening to the doctors and epidemiologists and the people who have been through other pandemics before. So in my case, I actually managed a team in West Africa during the Ebola crisis. And, and unfortunately, we, we lost one member of the team, which we considered to be a victory considering uh, everything else. But in that situation, there was no debating about whether or not we should be listening to the doctors or not. And I think partly because dying from Ebola was a very visible, rapid, graphic death. Dying from COVID, it happens over there in a long-term care facility or locked up in the ICU and nobody sees it. You know, we hear about people that have died. I've, I've had people I know who, who died from COVID, but I didn't see it. It was just, it was, I, I found it through an email and that was it. If it was more visible, if it was more graphic, if we could actually, frankly, you know, this is a horrible thing to say, if we could see the bodies, 20,000 bodies, so many bodies that if this was a war, it would be Canada's third most deadly war in our history. If we could see those bodies, nobody would be talking about opening up their music venue again. They'd be getting their butts back to their house. They'd be putting the mask on. They'd be shutting up and they'd be hoping to get through this. Yeah, I saw, you know, yesterday. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like times like these, uh, I've got Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters in my head right now. But but at times like these, we learn a lot about people that that we we didn't learn before. Like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm even saying this, but yesterday, I mean, this makes me sound like a, a junior high school student. But yesterday I unfriended somebody on Facebook because they posted, I'm not getting vaccinated, but I'm identifying as someone who got vaccinated. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that's a real shitty comment. Like, it's ki- it is yeah. kind of funny in a really asshole kind of a way. Uh, but I was like, that's just the wrong approach. Anyway, the same person had posted a, a, a screen grab, a text they got from their friend. And they said and they simply said from a friend and they posted it. And the friend said, just found out that that sickness I had was covid, you know, slight tickle in the throat, no respiratory challenges, no big deal. Didn't even realize it was covid while I was fighting it. And they they post this. Right. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking we've had my friend Jacqueline Robinson, who's a public health nurse in Vancouver. She runs marathons. She, she, She does yoga. Um, she's probably got, well, I'm, I'm smarter than to talk about her body fat, but let me just point. She's probably got like, like 1% body fat. She's one of the most fit people that I know. She just about died. She was in a coma for 10 days. Um, yeah. I have other friends that have, that have fought COVID that described it. Aaron Ross, uh, an Edmonton artist came on the show in tears talking about how it was, it was the, it was, it was the worst journey of her entire life. Uh, she, she, she felt like she was lucky to escape alive. I mean, th- these are people that are under 40. And uh, and I do think, Scott, that, you know, you, you get the word out. Some people say it was a tickle in the throat, nothing more. And then people think it's a joke. Oh, the average age of people dying is 84. So I guess who cares? Yeah, I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, I know the human brain is wired to take anecdotes as being more powerful and more important information than data. Um, because, I mean, frankly, we still have the brain of, of uh, you know, wandering nomads on the Serengeti, not people living in the 21st century. But you do have to look at the numbers and set aside the anecdotes and count the bodies, like I said. And, and if you do that, if you're rational, you realize that, you know, it, it might have been a tickle in your throat. But there are 20,000 grieving families right now who can tell you that it's not always just a tickle in the throat. Yeah. Uh, Scott, I, this is going to feel like a hard swerve, but, uh, you and I, you and I have spoken through the years and, and you wrote a piece, uh, back in 2015, as a matter of fact, in January. So this, this was like six years ago. And I was thinking of you the other day. It's actually what prompted me to reach out to you. We talked to Talia Lavin, 
um, her book Culture Warlords. Um, she's uh, she's uh, uh, a self-described Brooklyn Jew, and she said she was sick of what she saw online. She was sick of the the anti-Semitism that she encountered. So she started doing these these kind of Gonzo style deep dives into online forums. She wanted to learn about white supremacy, about anti-Semitism, about Islamophobia, and she she ended up. I mean, it, it, it's a really wild journey that she was on. She started talking to us about racism, and she was quite right to point out that white supremacy, that discrimination, that racism is certainly not limited to the United States. She reminded us that Canada has a, a long and storied history. You wrote about it, and I want to direct yeah. people to it. Uh, McLean's.ca, uh, Canada's race problem. It's even worse than America's. Now, this was six years ago. When you started writing about uh, water problems on 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 uh, indigenous reserves and the like, I noticed that that also surfaced in your recent piece about the prime minister, about having him go back to work. The piece that you wrote just just a few days ago, you also touch on the fact that there's a lot of unfinished business when it comes to getting clean drinkable water to many of Canada's indigenous communities. Has anything changed in your estimation in the six years since you wrote that remarkable piece on Canada's race problem? You know, when you mentioned you wanted to talk about that, I I went back to to look at that column because I got to be honest, Ryan, I forget what I wrote this morning. So I went back and I I was, you know, re-shocked at the numbers just, you know, for your, your viewers you know, the unemployment rate amongst Aboriginal Canadians is worse than it is amongst African Americans. The incarceration rate is worse. The homicide rate is worse. The infant mortality rate is worse. And we don't really see it in Canada because it happens, it tends to happen either in the inner city or remote communities. And it doesn't get nearly as much press as, as you know, Black Lives Matter does, for example, in the United States. I haven't had a chance to go back and, and check all those statistics to see if they've gotten better or worse. I suspect they have gotten a little better because over the last 60 years, they've all continued to creep towards better, but not good enough. And so I think the, the most important thing that has changed since I wrote that five, six years ago is that there are a lot more people talking about it. We're a lot more aware of it now. I'm, I'm, I was one of a few voices back then that was banging the drum on this. There are now a chorus of people and politicians are taking it more seriously at all levels of government. And so I am hopeful that we're going to get there, but we are a long ways away because like, as you mentioned, I, I checked, I can't remember the number right now, but somewhere in 27, maybe communities in Canada don't have clean drinking water. I mean, if those were 27 communities in Southern Ontario, the prime minister and the premier would be in their offices 24 seven, there'd be a national task force. The military would have been sent out already to, to set up uh, you know, water treatment facilities. We'd be treating it like the crisis it is, but because it's happening up in you know, Puckatawagan in Northern Manitoba, out of sight, out of mind. Well, and there are, I know you know this, but there are indigenous communities in Canada that have been under boil water advisories since the 1980s. They've been under boil yeah. water advisories for 40 years. I mean, you know, 40 years is enough time to come up with the idea of going to the moon, get to the moon, come back and then forget you've even been there. Yeah, no, I mean, Ryan, there is no excuse for this. And, and, you know, these might not be your people, you know, you might not have any experience with, with the indigenous communities and maybe even you've had a negative experience with them, but they're Canadians. And we are, as a, as a country, collectively, one of the luckiest nations on the planet. And, and you know, don't take my word for it. Every year, 
whether it's the World Economic Forum or the or or the United Nations or even travel magazines, they do rankings of countries based on you know quality of life and quality of healthcare and access to opportunity and you know <laughs> quality of food. And Canada always ranks in the top ten. We are one of the we are literally among the wealthiest and luckiest and happiest and healthiest people in human history in this country. And yet we have communities that, you know, they got to break the ice to get a bucket of water in the middle of the wintertime. Yeah, it's, you it's, know, uh, it's unbelievable. And, and it's, and, and as mentioned, it's uh, for a lot of Canadians, including a lot of people that are going to, that are watching this live right now, that are going to hear the podcast later. They're going to watch this on YouTube later. These are people, these are your fellow Canadians. These are human beings, including children uh, that live within 20 minutes or, or, or half an hour of you entire communities. Um, and we need to talk about it. Scott, in closing, there's a bit of a random reference, um, yeah. but but you did, uh, this was what, two years ago, maybe three years ago, you can remind me, one of, the, one of the coolest things, you put your money where your mouth was, and you started doing this, like, you did, I don't know what you called it, but like politics and pints, and you did this, right. you, do you yeah. remember? You, you, came on do, my, yeah. you came on my radio show, and we talked about it, you literally went across Canada, and you, I couldn't believe you did this to our radio audience. You said you were like, I'm going to be at this pub tonight at like seven o'clock and I want to buy you a beer and pick your brain on the future of conservative politics. And, and you bought how many beers for how many people? Whatever came of that exercise? Well, you know, that was from a personal perspective, that was one of the most interesting experiences in my life. And, and to, just to you know, explain to your readers, what had happened was it was in the midst of the conservative leadership race. Uh, I'm a longtime conservative or was a longtime conservative and was really, really disappointed at the rhetoric and how this party seemed to have drifted so far away from traditional conservative roots. And, and I wrote a column saying that. And I, McLean's was inundated with people from across the country who were saying the exact same thing that, you know, they wanted to vote conservative. But what is this party is now talking about, you know, uh, you know, putting together racist hotlines and things like this. And so um, I said, well, you know, I'll meet you for dinner. And I, I started in Halifax, ended up in Vancouver and it got bigger and bigger and bigger as I went. By the time I got to Vancouver, I think about 400 people showed up for a dinner. And same in Calgary, it was huge. It was so big that you know that we, we I had to get up on a table to to talk to people, and two things came out of that. One, I found it very very humbling, in the sense that I have always treated politics as sport because I can. You know, I, I was very fortunate in my upraising. I've been fortunate in my career since then. Politics for me is almost entertainment. I, I follow it like some people follow NFL, but for a lot of Canadians. Politics is more than that. Politics is, you know, it's, it, it's about whether or not they're going to be able to afford rent next month. It's about whether or not their daughter is going to be able to, you know, be accepted for the person she is. It's about, you know, whether or not they're going to, they're going to be able to continue to farm. You know, there's issues, there's decisions being taken in, in legislatures and in the House of Commons that have a direct impact on these people. And they're so sincere about it that I really felt like I was, I was a, a, an imposter. And so I found it very humbling. I realized that after that, I, I need to take my columns a little more seriously. I need to, I need to, uh, to treat all of this with the, the, uh, the gravity it, it demands. And then the second thing that came out of that was a recognition that the Conservative Party of Canada, as it stands right now, is probably two different parties. That while there was a merger between the Reform Party and the Progressive Conservatives, and while it does have one banner right now, those people in Canada who consider themselves conservatives or have in the past, they're in two different camps, very, very distinctly different camps. 
And right now under the current leadership, you know, uh, O'Toole ran very much for one camp, you know, we can call them the reformist camp, the Jason Kenney camp. Um, but he's right now trying to present himself as a, as a potential prime ministerial candidate as though he's coming from the other camp. And um, it's going to be a while, I think, before before we're going to have a, a competitive conservative party of Canada again. I I I know that you have to go. Um, one of the I'm benefits- on lockdown, Ryan. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I got, great. I got nowhere to go. Perfect. Because I I just I don't I don't want to end the interview there because you just you, you you said a couple things that are pretty significant and and you know that a significant portion of our listening audience is in Western Canada and probably a, a reasonable percentage of them either would identify as conservatives or would consider voting conservative. Um, you know, you, you basically said, you said, well, I've been, a, for as long as I remember, I've been a conservative. Then you checked yourself and you said, well, I was a conservative. And now you're saying that you believe it would be a long time before the Conservative Party of Canada could be competitive in an election again. Um, I feel like right now a federal election would be a disaster for Canadians because I, I just, I'm not quite sure that there's a great choice out there it would it would kind of mirror yeah. it would mirror october of 2019 to be frank that's my perspective um is your vote up for grabs have you sworn off the conservative party what do you think it would take for the conservatives to be oh no my, my vote is my vote is up for grabs um i right now like you i i can't see myself casting a vote for any of the of the three main parties over the greens right now hmm. um but there are, you know, there are some very impressive talent in the Conservative Party of Canada. There, you know, Michael Chong, for example, is currently their foreign affairs critic. Is somebody I've known for a very long time. He's one of Canada's most principled uh, politicians. He uh, he did run for the leadership. He ran on market-based ideas. He ran on the idea of opportunity for everybody, on equality for everybody. He was like and the only. He was the resonate. only guy open-minded to a carbon tax in that entire leadership race, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and the reason why he was open to carbon tax is because he recognized pretty much like all economists is it's the most market friendly way to approach it. Whereas bizarrely, the Conservative Party was proposing all of the sort of regulatory approach as though it was a bizarre upside down world. And it's because, you know, what's, what's happened in our politics over the years is that when the Conservatives say the sky is blue, the Liberals automatically jump up and say, no, it's not, it's green and vice versa. And so because the the liberals had adopted the conserv originally the conservative party position on a carbon tax the conservatives then abandoned it and said it was it was nonsense and so that sort of irrational politicking of which unfortunately the premier in alberta is very guilty of he just you know he he doesn't so much have an ideology as he has positions and um yeah that's not how you run a country it's definitely not how you run a country well do you think do you see you said with the exception of the Greens, they're under new leadership, obviously. Um, do you is that a, is that a comment that implies that you think the Greens are a throwaway vote or do you consider them to be a viable option? Uh, they're definitely a viable option, as they have been in Europe for, for quite a while. You know, the Green Party is very influential in some countries like like Germany um, or, you know, a version of the Green Party. I don't know enough about the new leader. I've only seen a few comments uh, and. They haven't been impressive so far, but as we come closer to election, and like you said, hopefully, I mean, just simply for health and safety reasons, I hope we don't have one right now. But as we get closer to election, I'll be doing a deeper dive into into all the parties. Yeah. Hey, let me bring this full circle as we thank you for your time. Uh, a viewer of ours by the name of Gilles, uh, I really appreciate his comments. He's, he's, he's a reasoned guy. He says many things that Scott Gilmore has said in this interview have made sense. 
but I still can't get past. He's going back to your current column, or at least one of your recent ones in McLean's. He says, I still can't get past the perception that nothing is happening when individuals are not in the office. He says this old school bias protects commercial real estate, but sitting at a desk does not mean performance. What would you say to Gilles? It's an interesting comment. Yeah, the prime minister's office is not a desk. It is a op center. It is a place with big conference rooms and and uh, and and crisis rooms. It has access to all the fastest technology in in the world. It has access to all the best people in the world. And I agree with with Jill. Just because you're working from home doesn't mean you're not productive. But with some jobs, like leading a G seven country. You need to be at the office. You need to be able to shout at your staff. You need to be able to have ad hoc meetings. You need a sense of, of urgency that you can't get from your den. And don't take my word for it. You know, talk to the president of the United States, the prime minister of, of, of the United Kingdom, the president of France, the chancellor of Germany. They've all come to the exact same conclusion. Scott Gilmore, uh, it is always an absolute pleasure to connect with you. Uh, next time we'll book you in for an hour. Uh, thanks for making time for us today. Anytime, Ryan. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you got it. Scott's a Canadian social entrepreneur, a former Canadian foreign services officer uh, and editor-at-large with McLean's Magazine. And uh, and of note, he's more than just the son of his parents, but his dad, Tom, uh, played more than 200 games in the WHA, including for the Edmonton Oilers. Pretty interesting stuff. Our thanks there. I wanted to get to some of your comments. Then we're going to get to Adam O'Brien, uh, Bitcoin Well. We're going to talk about crypto. We'll talk about Elon Musk. That's coming up in, in just a moment. Um, I appreciate uh, some of the comments here. Chuck, uh, welcome to the family. Chuck says, uh, I'm a new listener, uh, but every show here is so interesting and relevant. Scott Gilmore is nailing it. Appreciate that. Um, This is a great point from Sue Huff, uh, who's a personal friend of mine. um, And Sue has done, Sue's a cancer survivor. She's done amazing work when it comes to um, awareness uh, around eating disorders. And Sue calls me on something and she's absolutely right. And I'm happy to read this. Sue says, Ryan, I know it was just an off the cuff comment. I was talking about my friend Jacqueline, uh, who, who has fought COVID. Um, and, uh, and, and I was obviously exaggerating when I said Jacqueline has like 1% body fat. I was obviously kidding, but this is a serious comment from Sue uh, that demands to be read. Um, she says, I know it was an off the cuff comment, but anybody with 1% body fat is seriously ill. She says bodybuilders who strip themselves of fat for competitions do so at extreme risk. Seeking low body fat through extreme dieting can turn on eating disorders. Uh, That from Sue Huff. And she is bang on. And Sue, I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. And you're right. It was a joking throwaway comment. Um, I probably don't need to joke and throw away uh, with specific numbers around body fat. If it makes you feel any better, Sue, I'm probably hovering around 40 percent right now uh, through this pandemic. And uh, of course, we did have our eating disorders. Uh, it was our uh, roundtable conversation, our panel around eating disorders awareness week. Uh, for anybody that's interested in learning more on that and body positivity, uh, you can find that. That was uh, what was it, Sam? I guess about a week ago, I think that we had that that roundtable. Um, keep the comments coming. We're going to get to more of your uh, comments, including on the a live chat in just a moment um heather agrees uh, with what scott had to say we you know we haven't seen the suffering scott says that maybe you know more people wouldn't want live music venues opened up for example or maybe fewer people would be attending church in person for that matter um, if we saw twenty thousand bodies stacked up i know it's a, a troubling visual but that's the point heather says we should be seeing more of the suffering she says the sanitation of this pandemic has been counterproductive That's a really interesting comment. She says we're only hearing about minor minor illnesses, right? 
Another viewer says, you know, there's so much desensitization when our news is full of political scandals rather than focusing on the crisis. This is Kaylin says, like after 9-11, you know, they scrolled all the names during the Super Bowl. Where are the names now? That's a great question. Do you remember that email that I read you? I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was out of Strathcona County, Alberta. Um, I apologize. I can't remember the, the viewer's name, but they said, Ryan, they said we should be, the newspaper should be printing photos in memoriam and life stories of people who are dying from COVID. We should know who they are. We should know their names. We should see their faces. These should not be numbers. You know, Bonnie Henry in BC, Dina Hinshaw, uh, these chief medical officers of health uh, in Alberta across, you know, we've, we've come to know them by name or at least by face in, in Manitoba and Nova Scotia. And I can picture them right now. Ontario's minister of health, uh, they're public health professionals, you know, Alberta's premier. They'll all step to the podium and they'll and, they'll, and I'm not meaning this disrespectfully. Uh, this is just this is a fact. I'm not meaning it disrespectfully. And I do think that they probably feel it. Some of them feel it in varying degrees, I'm sure, but they feel it. But when they announce the statistics, they kind of they kind of adopt the appropriate posture and they adopt the appropriate tone. And they say, we're sad to announce that we lost 19 more Albertans or we lost 34 more Ontarians or the province of B.C. lost 16 more people today. Right. Every day. Every day we hear these numbers. Oh, 29 today. Oh, 21 today. It's like checking the weather. What's the wind chill today? Oh, it's minus 34 with wind chill today. Yesterday was minus 29. Tomorrow's going to be minus 41. It's, it's like stats. It's not, did you hear that Laura's older brother, after being on a ventilator for two weeks, terrified and unable to see his family, finally succumbed yesterday? Or, or did you hear that Brandon's daughter died from COVID-19? We don't talk about it like that. We'll get to more of your comments after 10 o'clock. We're going to get to your emails. Um, right now, I want to remind you that this program is able to continue to conduct these interviews, continue to grow, continue to expand our coverage because of our sponsors. And that includes the team at Westworld Computers that reminds you that, yeah, for more than 40 years, people have been going to them for the latest in Apple's lineup. You know, the iMac, the MacBook Pro, the watches, the phones, the tablets, of course, the iPad, like the one I'm using right here. But if that's not in your budget, brand new, but you need an upgrade, they have the refurbished hardware ready to go, including warranties uh, applied to whatever you're going to pick up from them used. Westworld Computers has you covered, whether it's new or pre-owned that you're looking for. You can find them in Edmonton, just off Mayfield Road, family-owned like they have been since their start more than 40 years ago. Also want to give a big shout-out to the team at Clean Air Club. If you check out cleanairclub.ca right now, you can take a step that'll take you less than five minutes that'll allow your family to breathe easier. That's what it's all about. They help you with their furnace filters. With the furnace filters that we know we're supposed to replace but we never do because our to-do list is always so long and we're always so busy... Well, Clean Air Club, make sure you get the furnace filter you need. They drop them off at your door and they help you save money. You can find more details at cleanairclub.ca. Our next guest is uh, a good friend of this show. Of course, he's the founder and CEO of our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin. Well, Adam O'Brien, it's a real pleasure to welcome you back to the show. My my conversation went way over time with Scott Gilmore, so I owe you an apology, but thanks for hanging tight. It's good to see your face. 
No worries at all, man. Happy to be here. How are you? How are you holding up these days? It's uh, these are wild times, and and uh, you know we're talking about evolutions in workplaces. We just talked to Scott Gilmore about the Prime Minister working from home. I know your team has rapidly expanded over the last year or so. How do you, as a corporate leader, how have you been managing the challenge of this pandemic with with your staff while growing a business at the same time? Yeah, we've we found um, that. Productivity has skyrocketed uh, with people working from home, and I think that's been been really really great. Um, we are we are an innovation focused shop as well, and so we've had to manage kind of a a hybrid model to have that collaborative, um, innovative environment alongside um, kind of some some precautions and safety of the office. So I think we've done a pretty good job. Um, we've we've got people you know uh, cross. Um, like teams cross collaborating and, and, and teams still able to kind of innovate and, and work together um, while at the same time being nice and safe. So it's been good. I'd say it's been good. We're actually, I think later, uh, later this week or early next week, we'll be announcing our new building that we're um, excited to be uh, moving to. So we're still very, very bullish on the future and, and, and still excited to be growing. And, um, you know, definitely do not think that uh, working from home is is uh, going to be here forever. OK, so I find this to be very interesting because anybody that that hears you speak for even five minutes is going to you might be described. This is a compliment, not an insult. You might be described, <laughs> but I've had an opportunity over the course of my career to interview futurists. Uh, people that that make that make their that make their living that either they're either write books or create wealth by looking ahead and, and predicting like getting a sense of where things are going like Wayne Gretzky used to do where he would put the puck where the player's going not where the player is I'm interested to hear that you are securing what I'm assuming is more square footage in brick and mortar office space because a lot of people are suggesting that one of the lasting impacts of this pandemic is, is going to be devastating for commercial real estate, that more and more people are going to work from home. Why do you not believe that to be what's best for your business? Um, so our business is heavily focused on innovation. Some might call it disruption. Um, I think futurist is a, is a nicer word for crazy person. So <laughs> no. um, I'll, I'll, I'll thank you for that. <laughs> but, do you, do you but, really um, feel that way? You really feel that way? <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I think that, that, you know, for, for, for me and, and the products that you want to build, like we're, we're literally changing the way society looks at money. Uh, there's no other way to put it. And so, um, for you to do that, you, you don't get the luxury of having everything to be scheduled. Like the, the inconvenience of a zoom call, um, is not a 30 second conversation. Hey, what do you think about this? Um, you know, we need, we need more collaborative tools to be able to do that. I think that, um, I'm not sure if you've ever had a brainstorming session virtually, but it's, it's not pleasant there. Um, it's not, it's not as easy or not as nice, not as, um, you don't get the energy of the room. And, um, because we're so heavily focused on innovation here, we're so heavily focused on creativity and, and collaboration. Um, like we have a shop where, um, you know, the design people don't just do design. The design people are heavily involved in, in operations as well. And operations, you know, is chatting to accounting kind of ad hoc or, um, you know, getting, getting the best results. And, and sometimes that results in like actual fiscal savings. Um, we had an instance earlier last year where accounting and ops were just kind of eating lunch and, and having a coffee and, and, you know, Frustration led to a conversation, led to a solution that literally saved us like hundreds of thousands of dollars in in, in a flow of funds method. So um, when you see that level of like accidental conversation, the power of the accidental is 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 immeasurable in my mind right now. And I really, really am bullish on 
um, technology that makes that easier, but also um, having a having a group in town. We're, we're we're pretty heavily focused in Edmonton, and and um, we plan on continuing down that that path. Uh, you texted me earlier this morning, and because uh, I, I gave you a heads up, I said I'm going to read you an email uh, from Keith. Uh, Keith wants to talk about the environmental impact of mining Bitcoin. And so I wanted to give you a heads up, not to say I'm not going to ask the question, but to say it's coming. And you responded back to me saying, tell the real talkers to send me every <laughs> tough question they can think of. So I want to invite real talkers right now, uh, either on our hashtag real talk RJ or on our live chat uh, to send your questions in uh, for Adam. Uh, let, well, let's get to what Keith wrote in to talk at RyanJesperson.com. He says, I'd be curious for Adam to comment on power consumption of Bitcoin as referenced in recent BBC reporting. People can just Google BBC Bitcoin. Uh, he, as Keith says, it seems backward in today's push for a greener society to be using excessive amounts of power likely created primarily by fossil fuels to create something that already exists vis-a-vis currency. He says, I'd be curious to know what Adam has to say. We should probably start by giving a one or two, well, if it's possible, one or two sentence explanation on what mining Bitcoin actually is. And then let's get to the environmental question. Sure. So I'll start with saying this. Sound money has never existed. Uh, we have never had a decentralized commodity like Bitcoin as a real store of value. So uh, this doesn't exist right now. This is innovative. Um, but uh, mining, the process of mining is taking a dedicated computer using dedicated hardware um, to attack or to solve an algorithm um, in order to bring Bitcoin into circulation. This is what gives Bitcoin a stable or consistent rate of supply. Um, so that's what a miner does. And, and as miners get uh, you know, as the mining network becomes more powerful, uh, more power is drawn on that on that network. It takes more powerful computing power uh, or more powerful com- computing hardware, uh, resulting in, of course, more energy drawn. I think, though, that what's missing from uh, the BBC article and, and from this common narrative that's kind of popped up in Bitcoin's recent surge um, is that miners are heavily uh, incentivized to not only consume less power because that's like their only cost other than hardware, uh, but to find green power because green power is oftentimes cheaper in the long run. Um, We can all agree, I think, that Bitcoin is not going anywhere. Um, Bitcoin mining, uh, you know, you you need mining for Bitcoin to run. And I think that um, these mining companies with big institutional money backing them now um, are heavily, heavily, heavily incentivized to find green or cheap um, or clean power in order to power these giant mining farms that are backing it up. Um, I think too, relating it to like, even just like fiat currency or or precious metal mining, um, you know, you can have a, a 20 by 20 CCAN mining Bitcoin uh, using full solar, or even, you know, you look at, there's companies out of Lloydminster, a company called Upstream Data. They take the excess burnout, burn off from oil, um, from oil rigs, and, and they use that excess that would have been blown out into the atmosphere. Um, they convert it into power and use that to mine Bitcoin, which is like not only just better power, that's just better for the environment. You're taking what would have been burnt off into the sky and, and turning it into sound money. That's like the best trade in the world, in my opinion. Um, but going back to, to gold, like you can't mine gold without wrecking the earth. That's just, that's just how it works. Um, our existing banking infrastructure is incredibly inefficient with the way they use um, energy in, in, in brick and mortar stores, um, coupled by like the immense amount of, of, of uh, materials that need to be used 
uh, in computer hardware, people, desks, plastic, um, uh, across the entire globe, um, I would say dwarfs what Bitcoin energy is using. Uh, you said something. You said we can all agree that Bitcoin's not going anywhere. Can we? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that uh, that still is controversial, which is funny because that's what's been said. I've been in this industry for, for eight years now, and I've been hearing that Bitcoin is dead uh, every year since then. What, Bitcoin was at $100 and Bitcoin was at, you know, now it's at $60,000 and people are telling me it's going somewhere. Um, the only place I've seen it gone is is better and bigger. Um, I think that when you start to see an S or a, uh, uh, a Fortune 500 company uh, put Bitcoin on the treasury, put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, saying that actually this is safer for my money to be than the U.S. dollar. Um, I think that Bitcoin is 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 like you know quick drying cement right now. Maybe it's like a little wet. You can probably put your handprint in it a little bit, but uh, but Bitcoin is 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 here to stay. I think. I mean the the Tesla announcement. Like we've seen micro strategies do this. Um, Michael Saylor has been a, a phenomenal advocate for Bitcoin and 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 the the uh, philosophy behind Bitcoin. I think that um, Fortune 500 companies, you know, doing this is is very very important. Adam, um, I want to acknowledge that we started the interview late, but we're 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 five minutes shy of ten o'clock, and the only schedule that matters here is yours. Um, so what's <laughs> what what's your? Uh, I can either fast track some questions here. Do you have to go right at ten? What's what's your hard out on the interview? Uh, no, here? I'm. I'm great. I got nothing but time here. We're okay. Uh, perfect. It looks like I've got uh, yeah, lots of time. Okay, perfect. That's that's music to my ears because they're real talkers are taking you up on your invitation. We're getting some great questions here. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, which is which is really great. And I want to get to them specific ones. Now, I mean, let's acknowledge um, you're here for three reasons. Uh, number one, because I'm fascinated every time I talk to you. Um, but the other two, I wanted to pick your brain, obviously, on the, the GameStop story and what it did to Wall Street and the parallel narratives that were running, uh, which is what was happening on the stock market and and then what was happening with crypto. And then that's not even really the most recent prominent story. You know where I'm going with this as a guy that's got two Teslas in his driveway. Uh, Elon <laughs> Musk uh, tells the world that he he's bought about a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin and the price jumps like almost 20 percent overnight. Um, one of our uh, viewers here, and I, I apologize, I can't find it because it's back in the chat. But someone said, um, I would love to invest in Bitcoin, but I don't want to lose a fortune if Elon Musk sneezes. Um, what do you what do you make of, of the volatility? I mean, obviously, there's been volatility all over the place, regardless of what we're talking about. But specifically with the Elon Musk headline and the Wall Street story over the past few weeks. Yeah, I think that Wall Street is is super fascinating, and I think that that gives us a real insight as to what censorship can do. I mean, I heard I heard you and the previous guest talking about censorship earlier. Um, I think that the censorship of the financial markets is really really scary. Uh, you have a platform that um, you know only allows one half of the trade. That is like the purest form of corruption on planet Earth. Um, I if there's nothing else to do but sell, I don't know how investors can can invest with confidence. And Bitcoin is censorship resistance. Bitcoin, um, you know, you can have a certain market, um, maybe try and stop Bitcoin. Uh, you know, every other week, China bans Bitcoin or accepts Bitcoin or what or whatever happens. But at the end of the day, the Bitcoin network, uh, in a in a peer to peer fashion, will prevail. Will live on. It is um, not impossible, but very very cumbersome for me to sell GameStop or any stock um, uh, peer to peer. Right, Ryan, you've got uh, you know GameStop stock. And if then I want to buy it, what do I do? Well, you say, well, 
you know, log into your trading app and just buy it because I have no way to send you that stock. Um, but uh, if my trading app does not allow me to buy that stock, that becomes very, very difficult. Um, and, and Bitcoin, you know, if I've got cash and you've got Bitcoin or if you've got cash and I've got Bitcoin, we can make that deal happen all day long. We are not reliant on any central third party uh, telling us that we can or cannot make that trade, which is why Bitcoin is so valuable. Why like the, the censorship resistant uh, protocol and platform that Bitcoin sits on um, is arguably its biggest feature. I think that that is what we see and what we will continue to see down the road. It's got all these other economic properties that are great. Um, but I think that the censorship resistance is kind of where where the benefits lie. CCCC on the live chat uh, says this is nothing other than a corporate plug for a sponsor presented as an info guest. Um, I will confront this directly by saying if you don't think that cryptocurrency is a story right now, you better not be working as a news producer because it's an enormous story. It's a huge trend. And yes, if we're going to talk about crypto and Bitcoin, we will go to our presenting sponsor. But I don't bring Adam on every week to talk to you about the low, low prices or the great deals or the promo codes. But of course, we're going to talk about something that's making a huge splash uh, when it comes to international news. You cannot ignore CCCC, the proliferation of cryptocurrency. It is a story. Adam, does it make you nervous? Is it bad for Bitcoin? When a headline like Elon Musk's bullish perspective on it bumps it up so big, uh, to me it goes to show that if someone like Elon, who could who, who, who's who's eccentric and who could change his mind in a second, uh, if he tweeted that Bitcoin was a sham, it could drop sixty percent. Does that concern you to a certain degree? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that the way that this is being portrayed is that Elon Musk did this, but it wasn't. It was Tesla, and and Tesla uh, is run by Elon Musk, but. Um, he's not the chairman of the board. He had to step down because of his uh, SEC troubles. Uh, there's a rigorous approval process. I mean, we know this just as a as a company uh, poised to be on the venture capital markets. Uh, there's a rigorous process for me. Um, I can't imagine what what Elon goes through to get anything through um, through that board, and and especially that board, given what that board has had to endure. I mean, um, it's it's pretty remarkable. I think that Tesla has done this because. Um, this is a strategy. This is something that but did, didn't, you know, Elon didn't wake up and think, oh, maybe I'll just spend a billion here. Or maybe I'll put it into uh, GameStop or maybe I'll just go buy another yacht. Uh, this is this is a, a, you know, the largest, the most valuable automaker in the world putting uh, Bitcoin on its balance sheet because it thinks that is the safest place for that portion of its cash reserves, uh, which is far different than Elon Musk. Now, that being said, the Elon Twitter problem um, where the entire market just lives or dies on what Elon says, that's a problem in and of itself. Um, I don't think that's special to Bitcoin. If Elon, I mean, Elon said use Signal and some random Signal uh, provider company on the on the New York Stock Exchange jumped by like 1,200% or something. I don't think that that is a, a flaw to the system. That's a flaw to what people, uh, not doing any research, that, that's our society just, just being ignorant in my opinion. Um, I, I think that, Tesla putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet is is really, really a big story. And it goes to show the value of Bitcoin. And it goes to show that this is no longer a a you know speculative investment. This is this is sound money. And this is something that people um, that I think people should be really looking at. 
Chris says, okay, so what if you're not against banks? What if you're not against government? And what if you've never been censored? Uh, What if you want regulation and transparency? I mean, is Adam going to fund people's mortgages and small business loans? Uh, No, if you have Bitcoin, you can get a a loan backed by Bitcoin if that's what you want to do. If you want to get a loan, then I would argue the same thing. Um, Bitcoin is not a uh, fractional reserve. Bitcoin is not a lending platform. Bitcoin is sound money. Um, The reason we have mortgages is because people can't afford houses. The reason people can't afford houses, uh, people could afford houses 50 years ago. They can't today because the money has been devalued. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin is anti um, or is deflationary. It is it is not in a position to be devalued in the same way that that fiat currency, that the Canadian dollar, the U.S. dollar. um, You know, do we talk about the Venezuelan uh, currency crisis, the Zimbabwe uh, currency crisis? Um, Money is designed or money was designed to be a store of time. Uh, You want to spend your time today making money so that your money is valuable tomorrow when you have less time. And uh, fiat currency is probably the worst thing in the world you could do with that. Maybe like maybe cars are worse than that. But other than that, like no one's buying a Ford Focus to like sell in 50 years. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think that anyone looks at money. Um, they don't look at that hundred dollar bill and think, thank goodness I've got this hundred dollar bill. Uh, it will be super valuable in a hundred years because it won't be. Um, we've seen that. That is not an opinion. That's just fact. And Bitcoin um, has been the best performing asset on the globe for like eight of the last 10 years. Um, I think that's pretty tough to ignore. And I think that that shows that society is craving sound money. And right now they're flocking towards it in droves. Uh, Uncle Jemima says Bitcoin is the most volatile currency to invest in. So why do it? Yeah, Bitcoin is not an investment. Uh, Bitcoin's a savings plan. Bitcoin is something that you put in like what I've said publicly and, uh, you know, not a financial advisor, all this good stuff. Um, You know, I suggest 1% of your portfolio go into Bitcoin. That's it. Uh, You put 50 bucks a month into Bitcoin for the rest of your life. um, You will be very, very, very well, or I think you will be very, very, very well off. Um, I, I don't believe Bitcoin is an investment. I don't believe you should buy it here and sell it here. I think Bitcoin is a long-term play uh, that is sound money. And uh, it's a hedge against the dollar. It's a hedge against hyperinflation. It's a hedge against everything we've seen throughout this pandemic. Um, The M0 money supply, the amount of money in circulation um, that exists today, 70% has been printed since April. So in less than a year, 70% of the money in circulation has been printed. That is incredibly challenging. That is incredibly frustrating. That is not a good place to store value. And Bitcoin is the direct solution to that. There is nothing else on planet Earth that is as scarce um, or as valuable as Bitcoin. Justin says there is a finite number of Bitcoins in existence that can be mined. I think off the top of my head, it's 21 million. Um, He says, he says, is that right? He says, he says, what happens when that limit is reached? Um, I guess supply and demand would suggest that the price will go up, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, economics, they, they do say that um, at that time. So that's that's slated to happen in, I think, 80 or 90 years right now, um, based on the rate of supply. And you can calculate that. You can look on, on on websites. If you just Google Bitcoin block info, you'll get a ton of information on on um, the mining cycles. And, and you'll be able to see when the last Bitcoin or the last fraction of Bitcoin will be mined. Uh, there's going to be, be decades where, you know, fractions of Bitcoin 
um, are mined um, in the same way that right now six and a half Bitcoin are mined. So um, supply and demand economics, you know, propose that that the value will will continue to increase based on this rate of supply and demand. Uh, but once they're all mined, um, I mean, we have the most scarce asset in the world. There is there is nothing on earth that can't be recreated other than time. And uh, you know, even you look at diamonds, they're making artificial diamonds. Dubai is printing land. <laughs> it's very expensive to do, but um, you know, we have no idea how much gold there is on planet earth. There's literally nothing that we know the scarcity of on earth. And um, I think that scarcity is like, should be one of the governing principles of sound money. And, um, or it is a governing principle of sound money. It should be a guiding principle, at least of, of our money. And Bitcoin offers that. Greg says, Adam, as long as people continue to buy Bitcoin, it will grow in value. That's why it's constantly pitched. Once people stop buying it, let's see what happens. What would you say to Greg? Yeah, um, I would say the same is true for coffee and the same is true for houses and beds and, uh, you know, our current currency. I mean, you look at, again, have you ever been to Mexico? Not many people, natives to Mexico, take pesos. They take U.S. dollar because they don't want their their currency how long does before that happens in 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 the u.s how long before a a coffee shop or a uh, a car dealer says i'd actually rather have gold or i'd rather have silver i'd rather have the u.s dollar i'd rather have the ruble um instead of the canadian dollar and i think that we have a monetary system that is governed um by a, a central body um and they have not done a very good job of keeping it scarce. They have not done a very good job of holding its value. And um, like he's absolutely right, supply and demand. If there's no demand and there's lots of supply, the price will fall. We have yet to see a scenario where that's happened. It's, you know, again, when I started this eight years ago, um, when I started down this rabbit hole and, and into this, this venture that, that we've, we've been able to, to build now, um, that was a real possibility. Bitcoin was three years old, four years old at that point. Um, not Bitcoin's 12 years old. We have we have bigger people than myself saying it's a good idea. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not egotistical enough to think that I'm the smartest guy in the room. Um, and I think that if we have the likes of, of, you know, people are looking at it as a store of value now. And I think that that just goes to show that, like, he's absolutely right. Greg, I think was the name. You're absolutely right. If people stop buying Bitcoin. It will go down in value. I just don't see people stopping to buy Bitcoin anytime soon. Um, Alex says, who wants to buy Bitcoin right now, though? It's so high compared to less than a year ago. Finance 101 buy low. I guess that's if you assume that there's not more room for growth, right? I mean, Bitcoin's at 60 grand right now. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to, but if it goes to a million, then you'd be good to get in at 60 G's. We should clarify. Some people are saying, what if I only have a hope? I think uh, said, what if I only have a hundred bucks to get in? You don't have to buy there's no actual physical coin just and I don't want to take any of this for granted, Adam, because I barely understand it. You, you've helped me both on and off air to understand it. And I'm and I'm and I'm legitimately interested in this. I'm, I legitimately think this is a huge story to follow. And maybe you and I will both wind up maybe in 10 years. People will, you know, when this show has has, uh, you know, five point five million subscribers and it's the hottest talk show in North America. And and you and I are still partners uh, and, and people will say, you look at these two idiots. You know, they were talking about crypto. <laughs> you know, they were talking about crypto 10 years ago. And now, you know, they're both, you know, it, it's it's a joke. Yeah, uh, maybe talking about crypto and working in the office all in the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And, and hey, maybe. Right. Like maybe. I mean, 
the you know the guy Wayne Huizenga, uh, you know, owned Blockbuster Video and bought the Florida Panthers, and now he probably can't buy lunch for his best buddies. But um, there's also a very good chance that it will continue to be a huge uh, uh, disruptor, and that it will continue to be a storyline and and be be more and more relied upon. Uh, I want to point out that people can you can buy in with one dollar if you want. You can buy in with five dollars if you want. You just get less of a coin than you would have got before. Um, but what would you say to someone, you know, like Alex, who says finance 101, buy low? Yeah, no, he's absolutely right. I mean, the best time to buy Bitcoin was 10 years ago. Um, no questions asked. But I think that the second best time is to buy Bitcoin today. If you subscribe to like a dollar cost averaging or a a a, um, a consistent rate of buying in, I don't think that the price of Bitcoin matters as much because you're looking for accumulation of sound money. Um, if you subscribe to the idea that sound money is better than not sound money, then it doesn't really matter the price at which you buy in. I mean, I think Ryan, not to not to you know bring up sore feelings, but I think when Bitcoin was a thousand dollars, you told me no, it's too high, and then same thing at ten thousand, and then same thing at twenty thousand, and all the way up. Can I tell uh, a can I tell a can I tell a personal story? Let me tell a personal story. Absolutely, I think it proves my point. So you you uh, and I uh, have we've we've done business before, and I've always been very upfront and transparent about that. Obviously, I'm proud to do business with you. Um, and uh, at one point, you offered. I don't remember if it was three or four. Um, but the dollar amount of the value of our business partnership, you said, I can pay you like in cash, you said, or I can give it to you in Bitcoin. And it would have been (laughs) by my math at that time, you would have transferred me for Bitcoin, which right now would be worth a quarter million dollars. Um, I took the cash (laughs) and, and yeah, hindsight's 2020, but I'll never forgive myself for that. I I could have paid off my house. (laughs) But I digress. That's not the point. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, people, every, every, every single person can name their their missed opportunity. And there's lots. Right. And and, and the guy that didn't get into Aurora on the way up um, is just as mad as the guy that didn't exit Aurora on the way down. And so there are lots. Um, there is there are very few. I mean, Bitcoin is at an all time high right now. There's no question about that. There's nobody that's bought Bitcoin at a loss today um, on Earth. Um, I think that that does two things. It, it tells you, yes, the, the price of Bitcoin is very, very high. Um, it also tells you that, you know, people are flocking to Bitcoin in droves. And, uh, when I bought Bitcoin, um, it had just reached an all time high as well. And that was a hundred dollars. And then Bitcoin hit another all time high of $1,200 and I bought more and then it crashed to $200. Um, and so for a long time, I had $1,200 Bitcoin that was only worth 200 bucks. Um, but I tell you what, $1,200 Bitcoin looks pretty dang good right now. And, um, I think in five years, $60,000 Bitcoin is going to look pretty good as well. Um, I want to make sure I pronounce this name correctly. I think it's a, a cam in a pizzeria. Uh, cam says, how, how long, how long cam and I met in Vegas. Uh, he's unbelievable. Um, he says, how long until we'll see a large portion of retail? He's a retailer himself. Um, he says, how long until we'll see a large portion of retailers accepting crypto for day-to-day transactions? I see that visa is coming out with a visa crypto. I haven't even looked into it I, or crypto visa, whatever they're calling it. Um, you think that's ultimately, I mean, is, is that five or 10 or whatever years down the road that you'll you'll pay in crypto for coffee I, yeah i think that like paying in crypto is is a benefit to the bitcoin network you you just can't pay anyone in gold this is not possible if you could we wouldn't have money um and and so the fact that you can pay in bitcoin or you can send bitcoin peer-to-peer is a is a great um feature of it 
I don't think that's necessary. Like gold has like a, I don't know how many trillions of dollars of market cap and you can't buy anything with it. So I'm not, think, I'm not sure that's necessary for like Bitcoin success. I think it's often talked about, um, you know, by naysayers as, as a way to, to maybe showcase like, oh, Bitcoin's garbage. It's like, well, you know, it does, it does the exact same thing as everything else that we call money just better. Um, so I think that, that by that respect, it's unnecessary. Um, I do think though, that it makes it easier. And, and so there are systems right now, like as a retailer, I'm not sure where, where you are, uh, Mr. Mr. Pizza, but, uh, the first ever Bitcoin transaction was 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas. It was made at a Papa John's in, uh, in New York in 2010. Um, you know, you could take Bitcoin right now, you know, um, not to get quadruple C all upset, but you can go to our website and, and, and enroll in a free online platform to accept Bitcoin, or you can go to a number of different um, spots that will do a, a conversion on the spot, present a Bitcoin address and allow your customer to pay um, in Bitcoin in real time. So um, I think you can do that today. I don't think it's necessary to Bitcoin's kind of like uh, the the future of Bitcoin. I don't think that's necessarily necessary, but it's certainly possible today. Um, yeah. And, and you know what? Kevin at Pizzeria, uh, he and his wife own, and I always ruin the pronunciation, butcher the pronunciation of it. Um, but if you're if you're anywhere in the Metro Edmonton region tuning in, they either they either own Basili's Pizza in Beaumont or Basil's Pizza. But so I don't remember which one it is. But if, <laughs> but if you want to support a real talker, he's not paying me for this, but I guarantee I better not pay for pizza ever again, Cam. Um, but that's well, if you, it sounds like Ryan, you and I should go and pay in Bitcoin. We go to <laughs> we can go to go out to Beaumont, Alberta and, and, and buy some Bitcoin. I want to get back to the questions from real talkers because they're coming. I want to get to as many of these as I can. Um, let me ask you this. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Eric is talking. Is it is it doge or doge d-o-g-e there's there's yeah. like how many different cryptos are there adam there's ethereum there's like there's like hundreds um does that i mean does that devalue the movement generally speaking i mean what is the market support does it all ultimately combine into one where do, can you comment on that one in particular and maybe on ethereum as well and, and then expand the the answer sure yeah no great question um doge and ethereum are just jokes um, Doge especially was literally built out of a, out of a meme. Um, Elon trolled everyone. And again, back to the danger of our society is, is, is absolutely horrible. Um, and, uh, I, I don't think that it's very good that people rush into Doge because it's cheap. They have that unit bias. Same thing. Bitcoin's so expensive. I'll buy Doge because I can get a million Doge coins instead of getting a fraction of a Bitcoin. It's like, well, do you want a fraction of a gold coin or do you want a hundred thousand grains of sand? Um, you want a fraction of a gold coin. And, and so Doge in and of itself is, is a meme coin. Um, Ethereum, uh, Ethereum has, has gained a lot of traction and Ethereum is a very, in my opinion, a very dangerous look at the cryptocurrency um, economy because it doesn't solve any problems and it's extremely centralized. Um, Ethereum is not sound money. Ethereum is not what I believe in. Um, Ethereum is controlled by a small group of people in Toronto that um, ultimately have the final say on how the network looks, which is um, just as bad um, as the you know governments controlling the money system, the central banks controlling the money system, but it doesn't actually solve any problems either. Um, and so I, I would argue that Bitcoin is a sound money protocol um, token that is uh, the only form of sound money protocol tokens and everything else um, should be looked at with heavy skepticism. Well, Bitcoin should too be looked at with heavy skepticism, which I've been doing for eight years. Um, everything else you look at with heavy skepticism. And um, 
I think you'll find a lot of flaws in the principles of these altcoins or these other coins. Um, and I think that in the next five to 10 years, we'll see a lot of them disappear. Wig, wig with says memes are super hot lately. Bye. Bye. Um, how, how about this? Uh, this is, this is a, a pretty great trade. David says I sold my 1993 Chevy Astro van for 400 bucks worth of Bitcoin a couple of years ago. Who's laughing now? Uh, that from my man, <laughs> my man. <laughs> that from, that from David, but you know what? We, um, but why um, would you ever give up the Astro van? Yeah. Well, hey, and Sam, <laughs> Sam also makes a very good point. Why would you ever get rid of a Chevy Astro van? Um, I, I'm more of a fan of the GMC Safari. We had the GMC Safari, which is just the redacked, rebranded Astro. Um, Donald says, I originally bought my first Bitcoin in the early days at 100 bucks, and I promptly spent it because it was supposed to be tradable currency, not speculative investment. Um, I, I can't find the other one here, Adam. It's way back here, but somebody just wrote in a heartbreaking comment that says, if I if I could find it, I'd give them the credit. But they said uh, they said basically they said I had a hard drive uh, that had 38 Bitcoin on it that crashed. I've heard this story a couple of times. Uh, people that can't access. We've heard that story in the news. People you've heard about this guy that he has two. I think I talked to you about this last time. He has two um, forgot your password attempts left um, before his, yeah. his hard drive is going to lock. And he'll like people can lose access to bitcoin for if your hard drive i'm i don't know what i'm talking about here really but 38 bitcoin is a lot of uh is is a lot of dough to lose access to um it would prompt me to sort of probably ask you about bitcoin wallets and things like that generally speaking how would you approach advice on this yeah i think that um you know sound money uh has has its its benefits and sound money has its responsibilities and um sound money requires you to be fully sovereign or for you to have full custody of your funds. And uh, right now we all pay the banks in time, risk and actual fees for them to keep our money safe. Bitcoin doesn't cost anything um, to hold. Bitcoin doesn't cost anything to, or very cost very, very little to use. Um, and uh, therefore we don't have the same luxury of somebody else's security. So if you have a rookie uh, rookie Wayne Gretzky card in a pristine 10 condition and you leave that at a water park, um, that's uh, going to be a big problem uh, because uh, trading cards also do not provide the security that banks provide. And so um, I definitely encourage people setting up Bitcoin wallets today, do it slowly, do it educationally, is that the word? Do it educated and uh, do it intentionally make multiple Bitcoin wallets are free. You can make, uh, I probably have thousands of Bitcoin wallets, um, that have been used once and then discarded that have been, um, you know, never used before because in the learning process, you set things up and you tinker and you, and you figure it out. There's a plethora of tutorials online. Um, BTC sessions out of Calgary. He's been making Bitcoin content for, for years and he's got a ton of great tutorials on uh, how to set up wallets, how to do it safely, the difference between hot and cold storage, the difference between a hardware wallet and a mobile wallet. Um, I really, really encourage you to check out this level of content and um, do it, do it with a sound mind, do it when you have time. It's not something that you want to rush through. Um, you know, you're literally learning how to control your money for the first time in many people's lives. You're going to have full control over your money. 
um, you should do that very, very responsibly. Um, it, it was Mark Smith that said he crashed. He says, I have a, I have a hard, uh, a crashed hard drive with 32 Bitcoin. It crashed a few years back, says Mark. Morning Bacon is offering to buy that crashed hard drive for $100. So we've got some bartering. I mean, 150 Yeah. One, <laughs> maybe I'll give him 200 and, pay, and sell it no, to no, you. No, no, 250 Sell it to I can't get into a bidding war with you, Adam. I know that. Um, Chris, Chris says, I've got serious FOMO on crypto. In other words, fear of missing out. I've got fear of missing out on crypto. I really need to understand it more. And Stephanie tees up what will make our last question for now, because I know you have a company to run. Stephanie says, where can you take like a crypto 101 course for people that are just not good venture investors? Or let's not even say not good investors. Let's say for the 95% of society, um, people that are intrigued by this or they're aware of it. And hey, listen, Adam, you make no bones about it. I'm not. Some people are going to say this is a pyramid. It sounds like a pyramid scheme. It sounds like a scam. I don't want anything to do with it. Just like people might not want anything to do with any other way that they can invest or store or save their money. But for the people that do want to learn more in good faith, what would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, like I'll take this opportunity to shamelessly plug. I mean, if you're in Edmonton, sure. we've got a team that, that just gives free uh, open, come on in, learn about the wallets, get set up, uh, no purchase necessary, just come and learn. So definitely, um, take advantage of that. Otherwise the best way to learn is just by doing download a Bitcoin wallet. Um, you know, take $10 and, and play around with it, spend some, you know, spend, send some coins to yourself, right. Wallet back and forth, um, learn about the network, watch the videos. There are no good crypto one oh one courses, um, that are out there. You know, we are, we would love to build a, like kind of an academy that would allow people to, to come and, and, and learn more. Um, everything you read online, I think, you know, from, from anywhere in any industry should be taken with, with grains of salt and should be cross-referenced and should be looked into. Um, in the same way that we all had to learn to use the internet and it took us like 20 years and we're not even really doing a very good job of it right now, I would argue. Um, we're going to have to learn how to use Bitcoin. We're going to have to learn how to use money. Um, having money in a bank is safe and it's very easy. Um, and they make a ton of money because it's very safe and because it's very easy. Um, having sound money is not as comfortable and that's okay because it's a lot safer. I mean, if you had money in a bank in Greece six years ago, that was a problem. If you had money in a bank in Venezuela today, that's another problem. Um, you look at Zimbabwe, the same story, Cyprus, Turkey, like there's just been time and time again over the last decade, um, where like, you know, governments are just failing their people and and banking is is not a safe spot to have your coins or to have your have your dollars so um i would say that there's a level of responsibility that has to be taken when diving into the sound money uh train our mutual pal cameron johnson wants to know if he can take possession of his bitcoin possession of his bitcoin and actual coins he says he'd like to make a chain out of them um, <laughs> you know what, Cam? I will happily trade real Bitcoin for any kind of coin that you'd like. I will give you one silver coin for every Bitcoin. You know yeah. what? I'll, I'll give you two silver coins yeah. for Cam, every Bitcoin that Cam, you give me. <laughs> I'll give you three. I'll give you three. Um, Adam <laughs> O'Brien is the founder and CEO of Bitcoin. Well, it, it's uh, and hey, thanks for letting us start late. Thanks for letting us go into overtime. Um, I, I keep an eye on, you know, sort of who's tuned in live here. And I know that this podcast will boom and, and you've held our attention. So we appreciate it, Adam. Thanks for this. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Anytime. You bet, buddy. Um, now, I want to remind you, uh, real talkers again, and, and Adam says it himself, and I'll say it too, that neither Adam nor myself are financial advisors. Uh, almost every time that I talk about Bitcoin on the show, I want to remind you that uh, you need to do what's right for you. The, the show is not uh, essentially telling you 
to cash in your RSPs and sell your house and buy Bitcoin. It's an intriguing story. We want to learn more about it. And just like uh, any other subject matter, whether it's politics, uh, whether it's, you know, items in the news, whether it's uh, different storylines that we're following in different industries, crypto is capturing our attention and crypto is a player. Uh, whether it's for you or not is only up to you. I think it's it's interesting, Sam. I don't know about you, but but when we have a conversation like we did with Adam, he has he has rolled out that number time and time again. His one percent. He always advises people. He says he says take one percent of your holdings, of your savings, of your assets, whatever, and, and put them into to Bitcoin as a hedge against everything else. I think that's telling. I think that's interesting. What do you take from this? And obviously, speak freely. Yeah, um, I think that's telling. I think that there's. Uh... God, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And, and you know, I, I will say, kind of contrary to what Adam's saying, is that, like, you know, part of the reason why I do like having, index, like, my investments are very, very boring. I have a bunch of index funds and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and they're held by a bank and they do it for me. And, yeah, I pay fees to that bank. But, you know, the, the banking system is highly, highly, highly regulated. And you want to see, like, about 5%, 5%, Exactly. 5%. Like, it'll yeah. just sort of chip up over terms. Like, I think I'm still personally sort of in the headspace that like Bitcoin is gambling. Um, it's it's a gamble that has paid off really well for a lot of people. And uh, I, you know, full disclosure, I, I own a very tiny amount of Bitcoin. And I have seen the value chip up a little bit and, and it's exciting. And there's, you know, there's part of me that looks at that value and being like, oh, I could get uh, I could get uh, I could get some nice shoes with that money. Or I could. Uh, yeah, I could I could sit on this and, and maybe get a new kitchen after a while. And then the other part of me has been like. Nah, if like if I want to treat it the same way I treat my RRSP investments, I, I really want it to just sit in an account for 20 years Buy and, hold. and see where it is. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? It's like, I think the volatility of it makes it very attractive to trade constantly, like almost become like a Bitcoin day trader. But at the same time as this like 1% hedge, I think there's some real value in that idea. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, I mean... Any smart financial advisor will say, don't keep all your money in one place. Mm -hmm. And this is just another diversification you can add to your portfolio. Yeah. Um, this is great. Uh, like Brenda is just like Uncle Sam bling bling <laughs> on the on the live chat. Uh, where was the other one I saw that I wanted to read? Somebody said, where is it here? They must have just tuned in and not seen you on camera before. Because they said, Uncle, oh, this is Jason, who's just, Jason's watching. He says, Uncle Sam, he says, you look like a million Bitcoin today. Oh, my God. If you were not. So 60,000 million? Uh, what, what is that? 60 trillion, right? 60 trillion, yeah. I can't believe I just did live math and actually came up. We'll fact check it later, but I think I'm going to do okay with that. Um, if you're just tuning in now, you missed Sam earlier. We asked, I asked Sam, I thought I knew the answer, but I wasn't sure. And I asked Sam if that was a real, real bow tie or a clipped one. He undid it. And then what was really a shame is that you didn't go back because I was doing a, a serious interview. So you didn't put yourself back on camera. Um, if the interview had been a little less serious, I would have stopped it. If I wasn't talking to retired Lieutenant Colonel, um, I would have stopped the interview because Sam was literally behind the mic blindly tying his bow tie again uh which i just thought was absolutely remarkable so so bringing his a game to the show today uh we better thank a couple of our sponsors here or we're going to get in serious trouble i love this email i got an email just the other day from bev um and bev says i love your show but my biggest complaint as a matter of fact the subject line just says complaint and so these are the ones we open first because i because i tell you 
you know, you can keep the music up. It's cool. Um, this is actually a, a, a sponsor. I know it doesn't sa- it sounds like a weird. It sounded like a sponsor read that turned into an email. And it's like, oh, we're going to this or not. But All the right. email, which is a, a, a viewer complaint, is the sponsor read, which is amazing. But we're going to read if it says complaint, we're going to read those ones first because we don't need to scratch our own back all the time. You know, we want to know what's ticking you off. We want to know how the show can be better. Bev says, I love, love, love the show. But my biggest complaint, she says the closest DQ is like 40 minutes away. We can all feel Bev's pain. She oh, says, yeah. she says, and, and, and she says, and they don't give great deals like the Dairy Queens of Northwest, Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Well, Bev, I mean, I didn't tell you to buy where you bought. I didn't tell you to live where you li- I didn't tell you to live 40 minutes away from a Dairy Queen. I can walk to the Westmount one. It's part of the oh, reason I bought Sam, my house. Sam, you don't need to be rubbing this in now. You don't need to be. <laughs> First, the guy ties his bow tie without a mirror. Then he starts bragging he can walk to the Westmount Dairy Queen. Uh, so she says, Bev says, in light of Alberta making a big deal about not being treated fairly. Bev. She says, I think you should either quit talking about this or get the same thing happening down here. Fair is fair. Bev wants more fairness. First of all, Bev, next time you're in Edmonton, DQ on me and you can hold me to that. I'm going to make sure you get DQ for free. In the meantime, we want to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen, those six locations in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, have you covered for Valentine's Day with their Cupid Cake promotion? 1649 from now through till Valentine's Day. And yes, they're open on the 14th if you drop the ball and you wait until then, guys and gals. It's the two-person shareable blizzard cake. That's the Cupid Cake. Just under 17 bucks. You can choose Red Velvet, Choco Cherry Love, and Oreo. Uh, of course, Choco Cherry Love, as I've mentioned, is my new adopted stage name and i can't wait to use that again the team at kubi energy we're so grateful for their support and they're working with us on that solar panel that roundtable conversation we're putting together wanted to remind you the team did that there's a new commercial grant that just got launched for businesses across alberta to install solar panels and complete energy efficient measures and it gives you up to 25 percent off of the cost now here's the deal as you know from the team at kubi energy they take care of the entire process you don't have to do the paperwork you don't get bogged down in the application kubi energy is one of the most experienced commercial solar contractors in alberta we're also grateful to be partnered up with st albert and sherwood dodge as you know the 2021 jeep lineup has everybody talking somebody yesterday said i was really surprised when you were talking about evs ryan that you didn't talk about the new jeep wrangler we didn't get too specific yeah, the, we were we were a little we were a little kind of ten thousand feet with that discussion. Ten thousand yeah. feet, yeah. yeah. But we did have actually on short notice. I'm really putting you on the spot. You know what I'm looking for. Sam's going to show it to us. Obviously, Jeep is in the EV game too. Now you can't go to Sherwood St. Albert Dodge right now and buy this. Let me be very clear. But Jeep has been ramping up their lineup. If you're looking, look at this. Are you kidding me? Look at that unbelievable beautiful that's what jeep's got in store on the ev market i'm happy to see they're not messing with the design of the wrangler too much those classic headlights that classic grill like is it actually a jeep if it doesn't have the round headlights yeah well the yjs had the square ones that's true they did yeah, yeah but I, I like the ret- i'd like the return to the circle ones so they got their compass fuel efficient the grand cherokee's got seven passenger capability now and then that grand wagoneer and of course, Sherwood and St. Albert, look at that. I could just stare at that all day long. Uh, Sherwood, St. Albert Dodge, ready to help you on the financing side as well. They can go 0% up to 96 months on approved loans. Go see Scott and his team there. This has been a hell of a show. 
I mean, we haven't even we've, we've got a lot that we haven't even got to. Um, I felt bad yesterday that I asked you to pull a video and in in the whirlwind that was yesterday's show, uh, we signed off. And I could see Sam kind of giving me the he was kind of communicating with me through the plexiglass. He's kind of like giving me the raised eyes like, aren't you aren't you going to play the video that everybody's talking about? Maybe we should start with the tweet, uh, the tweet from the judge, um, if possible. Sam goes, he's looking at me like, why aren't you doing like this is the whole highlight of the whole day. Now, we know that you've all seen the video by now. You've all seen the lawyer that is not a cat. Uh, But just in case there's one of you out there that has not yet seen this video, we have to play it. And for everybody else, if you're like me, you've watched it 35 times and it is still incredibly funny every single time. So here's how it starts. A judge from his Twitter. This guy's the real deal. Judge Roy Ferguson uh, out of uh, Texas says, uh, here's an important Zoom tip. And we verified the account, by the way, it is the justice. Uh, If a child used your computer before you joined a virtual hearing, like official legal proceedings, check the Zoom video options to be sure filters are off. This kitten just made a formal announcement on a case in the 394th district. Uh, Now, some of you are going to jump on me and say, hey, in the top left hand corner of the video, it says you cannot record this. You cannot release this at risk of prosecution. The judge himself that's hearing the case released the video. So we're okay. Sam, let's roll it. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to. Uh, uh, take, take we're a trying look. to. We're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, the, it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> I'm here live. I'm not a cat. It doesn't get old. <laughs> it's not yet. It doesn't get old. <laughs> I, I saw... <laughs> Wigwith says, I think I was actually missing out on a very good career being a cat voice actor. Can we, I don't care. I, I don't mind. Can we roll it one more time? It's, this is my, this will be, I think my 37th time viewing this now. It is. And, and for those that are listening on the podcast, I apologize, but this is just, uh, you got, Martin, you, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to, uh, uh take, take we're trying look. to, we're tr- can you hear me judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> just absolutely incredible. I hope that that makes your day. Um, this is just uh, one of the coolest things. I literally have tears in the corner of my eye. That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, so absolutely amazing. And uh, thanks to so many. Uh, the few, eyes on the cat. The eyes, the like sad little eyes. <laughs> then somebody says, like some random guy says, the poor man's voice is so panicked. And he is like, you're, you're making it, you're representing a client. Uh, you're in front of a judge. These are official, like this is on the end. You, uh, your honor. And the kitten's eyes are just looking so sad. Um, this is, uh, and Sean wonders why is the other guy here? Okay. I promise just one more time. Now I want you to look at the guy, look at the guy. Let's go full screen. Sam, look at the guy in the top right hand corner. Look when he 
Look what catches his attention. The video settings. Uh, you might want. It's to, coming up. Uh, uh, take, take we're trying look. to. We're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the, it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. Watch She's Jerry. To, Here's Jerry. Uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's. I'm here live. It's not. I'm not a cat. <laughs> I can. I can see that. I can see that. So Jerry, Jerry Phillips is like, he's on his phone. He's on his black. He doesn't, he's like, okay, he's been through this a hundred times. You know, like it's why we have these, like you're on mute signs. Like everybody, like we're all used to the one person that's always on mute or the, but, but the filter, the cat filter is a new one. Justin says this video is just killing me. Sean's why is Jerry not laughing? Um, amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, Tracy says, it's like the judge is talking to a child. Tracy says, I, I have to give props that nobody lost their cool. Scott says, you guys got to play that at least two more times. Kim says, in my imagination, that guy's assistant knew exactly what they were doing. <laughs> Morning bacon. Do you see me jumping all nimbly bimbly from tree to tree? Am I drinking milk out of a dish? Scott says the next filter that Zoom should release is a white man lawyer for cats to pretend to be humans. Yeah, Ken says, and then he knocks the webcam over. He is a cat. Others say, I'm not a cat. That's exactly what a cat would say. My favorite response to this, and I don't have it uh, teed up, is Margaret Atwood treated in response. Um, I'm, I'm actually a cat with a human filter on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Joe wonders how much cat food and treats are showing up at that guy's office today. Laura says the reflection in the eyes makes me so happy. Uh, Chris says, hello, fellow humans who are definitely not cats. Anybody got some yarn that from Chris? Uh, maybe we can go. OK, well, you know, maybe maybe, maybe can, can you hear me, judge? Asked Justin. Uh, OK, so I've never had so many LOLs on the on the chatterbox before. That's amazing. Uh, we got to fit these in. But we're not going to forget about these sponsors, obviously, but but want to remind you because I have a bad habit of, of getting myself into a just a, a laughing fit. And then I feel inspired to close the show um, so so that the rest of you can go about your day. So let me remind you that the team right now at Eden Landscaping is ready to help you realize your dream for your front or backyard space. And that can most certainly include that outdoor kitchen you've always dreamed of. Maybe that outdoor Forno pizza oven. What about a fire pit that's more than just cinder blocks? That thing you threw together, lopping the top off an old oil barrel. What if you want to actually have a space you can show off? And as soon as we're allowed to throw big parties again, why not make yours the first as you unveil the masterpiece, the masterpiece that was created by the team at Eden Landscaping. They've been at the game for more than 20 years. They want to meet you over Zoom today, tomorrow. Take a look at your property over Google Earth and start planning. You can find them by visiting the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you'll also find Park Power, also at parkpower.ca. If you use the promo code 2021-realtalk, you're going to save an immediate $70 off your first internet, electricity, or natural gas bill. Commercial, residential, they do it all. And as you know, they're prominent on social media, identifying some, who some of their proud partners are. The charities they support, they take 10% of their profits and they put them back into the community. Name me another power provider that's doing that. 
Park Power at parkpower.ca. And finally, a huge shout out to our friends at Local Waste. They've been in the game for more than a quarter century. They started small, local, and they've retained that family ownership. It's why they ask you to give them a call and refer to them by their first names, Chris and Lauren. They love to talk trash. Whether it's a small family business or whether it's a big shopping mall that you're running, they want to handle your waste management, garbage, recycling. They do it all. Give them a call at Local Waste right now, 780-242-9746. Sam Brooks is trying to throw me off here um, by updating our site. This is just in case we're checking in on the 394th district, right? Just in case. And we can just let everybody know. Yep. With our new sign for, for for the thousands that'll listen to our podcast today, our you're a cat sign that'll make it easier for everybody. Why don't we close with an update? This show will follow up. We want to fact check things. Sometimes it might not happen that morning because we are a small but mighty team about to grow. By the way, I announced yesterday that on Tuesday, February 16th at RyanJesperson.com, we will be posting our next job listing. Woo-hoo! Our team is set to grow and we're very excited about that. Um, but we also want to follow up on some of the stories that we've covered. And that includes a question, a great question that one of you real talkers put in front of Edmonton's mayor, Don Iveson, the other day, as he was preparing to act in his role as chair of the big city mayor's caucus, uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities talking to the prime minister leading up to the next federal budget. One of you asked about testing Edmonton's wastewater for COVID. And so we asked the city to get back to us on that. We wanted to give you an answer. And our thanks to the city of Edmonton for the quick response. Uh, Many cities, says the city of Edmonton, many cities uh, and jurisdictions in North America and Europe have been testing for the COVID-19 virus in the municipal wastewater as an alternative or complementary means of tracking infection in the population. EPCOR has been assisting researchers and health authorities with this kind of work in Edmonton over the last several months. Although the results of this work for the city of Edmonton have not yet been made public as they try to understand what they mean, it is likely they will be made public by health authorities at some point in the near future. That from the city of Edmonton, that in follow up to one of the questions that you asked, we want you to continue to send us your questions, your comments, your feedback to a certain degree. And in many instances, it drives our editorial process. It keeps us plugged in to what you want to hear more of another great way to do that is by answering our question of the week presented by y station and we want to remind you this week that we're asking you about what we talked to adam o'brien about and we want you to speak freely how do you feel about the big banks how do you feel about wall street and the stock market how are you feeling about crypto you go you answer the question of the week at ryanjesperson.com it's right across the top bar and then on uh, rather on tuesday because we'll be observing family day and we encourage you to take a day off and put your feet up too on tuesday we will bring you the results of that question of the week we'll call that a show for today wanted to let you know tomorrow right around quarter to nine mountain time quarter to 11 eastern we'll check in with the founder of the world's longest hockey game it's so cold their pucks are shattering plus a roundtable with the team behind the wildly popular podcast the strategists have a great day